listening to Radio Sputnik. Telling the untold. Welcome to the Open University of the Airwaves with George Galloway. Only on Sputnik Radio. Welcome to the mother of all talk shows, the Open University of the Airwaves, the College of Knowledge, where there are no tuition fees and where you are encouraged to speak back to the teacher. It's going to be a stormy show tonight, not least because I'm on the 16th floor of a tall building in England where everything seems to be in danger of blowing down. And is not much different in Dublin, where little Leo Varadkar is out. In fact, he's probably on a plane to Brussels right now for his next job as a spokesman for his beloved EU. Sinn Féin look to have won the elections in the Irish Republic, once derided as the political wing of the IRA, their leader having to speak through the voice of an actor on the BBC, it looks like they have come top of the heap in the Irish elections. We'll be talking to an expert about that. And Bernie Sanders was defrauded in Iowa. Will he be equally similarly cheated in New Hampshire in a couple of days from now. Crazy Nancy Pelosi ripping up President Trump's speech behind his back in defiance of all propriety in the US Congress. But Donald Trump walked free, is walking tall, and is now at 49% in the public opinion polls. And then there's the coronavirus. I've just been flying around the world myself. I've got to tell you, there's a bit of a panic on We'll be talking to a man in China about all that. Fasten your seatbelt. It's going to be a bumpy ride. Radio Sputnik. We speak your language. The mother of all talk shows. The only education you can get for free. George Galloway. This is Radio Sputnik. This is London, but coming to you, of course, all over the world, thanks to the wonders of the internet and sputniknews.com. We're also on FM in the Washington, D.C. area of the United States of America. 105.5 are the magic numbers there. Also on AM across America from C to Shining Sea. But uniquely, this is a radio show with pictures and many of you, maybe most of you, are watching as well as listening. And if you are on Facebook, then please share it with all of your followers, all of your friends and connections on that platform so we can get back up to that magic number of one million viewers plus listeners, but we can't count those. But we did get 1.15 million viewers on episode 29. And having tasted it, having been to the mountaintop, I'm determined that we get back up there again. So please share if you're watching on my Facebook page, on RT's many Facebook pages. Please share with all of your friends. You can also watch on YouTube, on my YouTube channel, on RT's YouTube channel. You can also watch on my Twitter feed 
as thousands of you are now doing. Now, it's stormy weather outside, that's for sure. Although, having just spent the last six days in Russia, where not a drop of snow or ice lasts for a second on the roads or the pavements, is swept, shoveled, salted, sanded away, and nothing comes to a halt, it's a bit surprising to be told that half of my staff this evening haven't made it into work because of transport difficulties. Both of the train lines from Glasgow uh, and Edinburgh to London cancelled because of the weather. The BBC, BBC One, a five billion pound a year business off air because of a storm. Makes you wonder how the Russians can do it and we cannot. Although that's true in more ways than one and I'll come back to those issues uh, in a minute. I want to begin with the breaking and extraordinary news coming out of the Irish Republic, where little Leo Varadkar, the darling of Brussels, the foghorn, the mouthpiece of the European Union, has lost the general election, and may even now, as I said earlier, be on a plane to Brussels to a well-padded political and financial exile. Sinn Féin, once derided as the political wing of the IRA, so toxic that their leader could not be heard on British television. His voice had to be substituted by an actor. It was good work, actually, for the Actors' Union back in the day. But Mrs Thatcher would not give them the oxygen of publicity. Well, they didn't need it. They were kept off the Irish television leaders' debates, even though they were up there in the mix, in the polls, but they have emerged as top dog. We'll be talking to Kevin Marr, a very considerable expert and long-standing guest of the mother of all talk shows about that. We'll be asking him whether Sinn Féin can now form a government, what kind of government that would be, and what that will mean on the issue of the border on the issue of Irish reunification. I make no uh, apology for saying that I have myself supported Sinn Féin all of my life. So if I seem extra pumped this evening, it's because I wasn't quite expecting a result like this. But it does go to show that small parties can become big parties, and big parties can become small parties and very quickly indeed. The Labour Party, for example, looks determined to become a small party. It's already 80 seats down in Parliament and looks set certain, according to the bookies, 10 to 1 on at the bookies, to pick as its next leader a knight of the realm and the man responsible for the policy shift which destroyed the Red Wall, drove Labour into exile in the metropolitan areas and cost them the election. You might call that masochism. I certainly would. But it's partly the fault of the Corbynites that came up with an alternative candidate who just doesn't cut it. And that is increasingly obvious with every day. Even in Jeremy Corbyn's own constituency, Labour Party, they picked Keir Starmer 
over Rebecca Long Bailey. So a lot of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of Labour members are going to have to face a difficult decision. Is it business as usual under Sir Keir, the champion of the EU, of NATO, of uh, the whole Tony Blair agenda? Or are they going to be looking for somewhere else? Or perhaps leaving politics altogether? It's a pretty sad end, isn't it? To the not even five years of the Jeremy Corbyn era. And what a pity too that Corbyn fell just as Bernie Sanders was rising. Bernie Sanders now is bang dead on to be the Democratic Party's candidate in the November election in the United States. As exclusively predicted here by me long, long, long ago, long before anyone in the mainstream was prepared to give it house room. It's amazing how often I'm right. In fact, if I ever write another memoir, it will be called I Was Right About Everything. And I was right about Bernie. He is the only man that can defeat Donald Trump, and he is going to be the winner of this primary contest. Unless, of course, they cheat him. Unless, of course, they stop him by undemocratic, unorthodox means. And that, of course, cannot be ruled out, especially in the wake of the farce in Iowa, where in a Caucasus process, they invented an app. Now, for those of you who don't know what a caucus process is, you book a hall and you ask people to stand in different places in the hall and you count their heads and you know who's won. Why you need an app for that is entirely beyond me. You only need someone that can count heads and an old-fashioned telephone to ring the result in to the headquarters and somebody with a pencil and paper at the other end. But now, a week after the event, we still do not have the final result in Iowa. And that's because Bernie Sanders won and they wanted to stop the momentum from that win, taking him to a landslide victory, perhaps, in New Hampshire this week. And we'll be talking to Garland Nixon, a good friend of ours from Sputnik in the United States, who knows a thing or two about American politics and Bernie Sanders. We'll be talking to him in the course of the show about what happened in Iowa, what's likely to happen in New Hampshire, and what are the options open to the political orthodoxy, the political establishment in the United States to stop Bernie. And anybody who knows anything about the United States knows that those options are quite wide-ranging. And we'll be talking about China. I've just come back, as I said, from Russia. I've been on four airplanes in the last uh, few days. I've got to tell you that there is something like panic struck in the hearts of all kinds of people when they see someone who looks like they might be Chinese, someone like my wife, someone like my children. People are wearing masks. People are shying away from other people because they fear the corona virus. China has moved mountains to try and stop this coronavirus, to try and restrict it. But there are so many people in China, 
and so many Chinese people in the world that it's not proving easy to restrict its spread. A lot of people have now died, far more have survived, but have had the virus, have tested positive for the virus, now in virtually every country in the world. Cruise ships in the United States this week being pulled over into harbor and sick people being carried off them. It's going to do wonders for the cruise ship business over the rest of the winter and the spring, I can tell you. It is, of course, still a moot point of what this coronavirus is, how it struck China in the way that it did. It's a moot point whether China could have handled it better. There are people who say that the attempt to stop the panic, the cover-up, is often worse than the actual problem itself. I'll be discussing that with a distinguished guest from China also later in the show. We'll be talking about British politics, Irish politics, American politics, politics everywhere in the world. We'll be talking even about heroes because tonight we begin the long-awaited induction of the first candidate into the mother of all talk shows, Hall of Fame. We've even got a beautiful new graphic. And tell me if you like the new look. I'm told I'm looking purple, papal, purple. That'll suit me. Tell me what you think uh, of that. We'll be uh, inducting the first of our heroes into the Hall of Fame. That nomination is mine. I'll be making that nomination, but you can make subsequent nominations. Just let us know, preferably by email, but also by tweet, by uh, any other means who you think should be in our Hall of Fame and give reasons why. And we'll make an adjudication during each week as to who the next inductee will be. In parallel, from next week, there'll be a wall of shame. And you equally can do the nominating for that. Now, we've got a poll. Poll number one is this. Following Sinn Féin's success, will there be a united Ireland in A, 10 years, B, 20 years, C, never? You can vote now on my Twitter feed. I think 10 years is a bit of an exaggeration, actually. I think that the reunification of Ireland will happen more quickly than that and will happen with the kind of sweep that the reunification of Germany happened. I think it will be a moment in time which will sweep away the border, sweep away the partition of that small island. And I wanted to take three or four minutes just to educate those who perhaps have not had my background as a child of Irish immigrants, have not paid the closest attention, shall we say, to how we got to a stage where a tiny island was partitioned into two countries in the first place. The Irish people were conquered by the Scots, first of all, and then by the English, and then by Scotland and Ireland together as the British Empire many centuries ago. The Scots were there first in the 17th century before the Union, before Britain was ever invented. 
they conquered a part of the north of Ireland. Soon, Britain would conquer all of Ireland and would subjugate it as a colonial territory, exactly as all the other colonial territories from India through Africa and the Arab uh, Middle East and so on. Ireland was a colony of Great Britain. The Irish people never accepted it from centuries. Successive generations produced resistance, upheavals, uprisings, revolutions, bloody repression. Everything that could be done by an occupied people was done by the Irish people and everything that could be done by the colonizer to repress them was done up to and including mass murder, famine and mass immigration and deportation uh, to the colonies of those who stood against the British occupation. In 1916, a great blow was struck against the British Empire on Easter weekend of 1916 in Dublin, in the general post office, when an uprising took control of a part of Dublin, was ruthlessly repressed, its leaders uh, cruelly executed, including the great James Connolly executed, whilst tied to a chair because he could not stand up on account of his wounds. The leaders of the Irish uprising, the rebellion in 1916, were cruelly dispatched. The uprising was defeated. But just like the Tet Offensive in Vietnam in 1968, that which was a military failure was a political success because within a few short years, the Irish people as a whole had voted for Irish independence and unity, voted for a party called Sinn Féin. At that point, the British decided that if most of Ireland could not be held onto, if Ireland's four green fields could not continue to be occupied, then one of those green fields would remain in bondage. And that's how we got somewhere called capital N, Northern capital I, Ireland. It was gerrymandered in a way that they thought would ensure a pro-British majority would live there forever and keep that small part of Ireland, six counties out of 32 counties, as part of the United Kingdom. But they didn't account for several things, one of them inexplicable. As soon to be the father of my sixth child, I've got to tell you, we produce, by the grace of God, a lot of children. And the population demographic has been tilting dramatically in the six counties towards an Irish majority, towards a nationalist majority, a majority for reuniting the country. They didn't take account of the fact that many educated, graduate, achieving people from the unionist population in the six counties would not prefer in the long run to live in such abnormal, unusual, rigged and sectarian situation and would leave and go and live in England 
go and live elsewhere. They did not take account of the fact that educated, intelligent members of the unionist population would one day conclude, not least because of the issue of the European Union, that if I'm to remain in the European Union, well, I'll have to reunify the island of Ireland and thus everyone can be satisfied. They did not take account of the march of history. Now, reunification is ineluctable, unstoppable, and I think will be along much sooner than 10 years. But you can vote A, 10 years, B, 20 years, C, never. 52% of you say 10 years so far, 12% of you say 20 years, and 36% of you say never. If you want to argue the toss with me on that one, you're welcome. It's going to be the mother of all talk shows. Radio Sputnik. Every Tuesday to Loud and Clear for a regular segment called False Profits, a weekly look at Wall Street and corporate capitalism, where we talk about the big economic issues of the week from the point of view of working people, the poor, and the U.S. position in the global economy. Join us this Tuesday and every Tuesday with financial policy analyst Daniel Sankey right here on Radio Sputnik. Want to talk? Get in touch with us at radio at sputniknews.com. We are talking 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You are listening. We give you the most essential out of the endless information space. Radio Sputnik, telling the untold. Radio Sputnik, we speak your language. Find us at SputnikNews.com. 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We give you the most essential information out there. Radio Sputnik, telling the untold. George Galloway and the mother of all talk shows. Join us at the College of Knowledge, where there are no tuition fees. The fiasco of the Democratic Party's caucuses in Iowa are still trending, even though it's a very small place and a rather small number of people's votes are in play. As I explained earlier, it's inexplicable that they needed an app to count the few thousands of voters in the Iowa caucuses. It's even more inexplicable that that app was developed by a company, a large shareholder in which was one of the candidates, the candidate who claimed that he'd won, even though he lost. And that now is accepted as fact. Pete Buttigieg is not the winner of the Iowa caucuses, though he successfully muddied the water over the first few days in the wake of the caucuses by claiming that he was. Now, clearly he wasn't. Sanders won won by several thousand votes, but there's everything to play for in New Hampshire now, and it may be that Buttigieg's momentum was boosted by the Iowa uh, fiasco. It may be that Bernie Sanders' momentum was blunted by the fiasco in Iowa. One man knows, 
the answers to all these questions. He's my colleague from the United States, from Sputnik. He's Garland Nixon, and he's on the line now. Garland, welcome back. Great to be back, George. Very nice to see you. Sorry I missed you when you were in England, but let's talk about Iowa first of all. What's Certainly. the latest state of play in the Iowa caucuses fiasco? Well, I, I think we're at a point where, at this point, the numbers and things like that are irrelevant. Yeah. The fact that it was blatantly obvious that the, um, the, the, the Democratic Party put their thumb on the scale once again, no, they put their entire foot on the scale and jumped up and down on it, um, has, I, I think it's going to have a profound effect on U.S. politics for a long time to come. Uh, looking forward, I don't know if you know it, but Joe Biden, I'm thinking he's in a world of trouble because just today he referred to a, um, a, 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 a voter who was asking him a question, a young lady, he referred to as a lying dog-faced pony soldier. Wow. He's, yeah. he's lost. He, I mean, if there's a big loser from Iowa and since, it's Joe Biden, isn't it? I, I think his well, campaign is fatally hold below the waterline. Yes, but Joe Biden, I think, from the very beginning, you know, if you look at his history and you look at what they were trying to project about Joe Biden, inevitability, they had nothing else. So I never considered Joe Biden as a real serious, um, as a real serious problem in the long run. Um, we've seen them, you know, they pushed Kamala Harris and Pete Buttigieg and then Biden. They're very, very desperate. I think what we've learned from Iowa is the Democratic Party is extremely desperate and they don't have a plan. So all they do is they try to put out fires, but for all they did, for all of the work they did, Bernie Sanders still, they were unable to hide that he got more votes than anyone else. And if you look ahead of Iowa, Pete Buttigieg, if he's, if he's their guy, he's like under, under 10%, under 6 or 7% in most other states. So he's not an option for them going forward. I think Bloomberg gets going to be, unless they redraft Hillary Clinton. What do you think? Well, you know, that's the, again, if you think about what we're saying, is it going to be Biden? Is it going to be Buttigieg? Is it going to be Bloomberg? Here's what we know. They have no plan. It's, they're kind of like when a person falls in the water and they're drowning and they reach and just grab for anything they can get their, hold, their, their hands on. That's what they're doing. Meanwhile, they're up against someone in Bernie Sanders who has a solid movement and volunteers. There's no way in the world that this helter-skelter, um, frightened, uh, uh, um, backed into a corner party is going to be able to deal with a stable political movement. I agree with you. And like you, I have long predicted that Sanders cannot be stopped, at least by orthodox and democratic means. Uh, are there any short of the Jack Kennedy solution, the Bobby Kennedy solution, the Dr. Martin Luther King solution? Are there any solutions for the power I, I, in the United States short of those? Here's what I would say. There are no above board solutions, because if you look at the numbers, if you look at what happened to them, they were able to knock Bernie out in 2016. But he's had, what, three and a half years to build his machine. So they had no one else who they were prepping for this. Thankfully, you know, the, you, you've probably heard the old Persian quote, uh, thank God for making my enemies fools. Thankfully for Bernie Sanders, they didn't prepare for this. So now, no, they don't have anything. I've said all along, Bernie Sanders 
Sanders' only hope is to beat them so bad that they can't steal it. That was his only hope. From the looks of things now, he might do it. So he's going to push him into a corner at some point. They're going to have to either make some desperate move. And, and the way I see a desperate move is they're sitting in a corner with Bernie, and there's the grenade. And Bernie's saying, if you're going to pull the pin, pull it. Because to take Bernie out when he's leading, the way Bernie's going to be leading, will be the death of the party. Yeah, although just like here in Britain, where the Blairites were more than ready to blow up their own party rather than allow Jeremy Corbyn to lead it to victory, the same is true of the establishment Democrats, isn't it? Hillary Clinton, uh, uh, Bernie did 39 uh, rallies for her. She's done 39 television interviews already against him. Yeah. Here's the difference I see. There's a major difference, and that is this. They were able to isolate Jeremy Corbyn, and they spent a long time isolating him, and they were able, able, even able to isolate him within the party. Bernie Sanders has always operated as a movement, as the Bernie Sanders movement. They can't isolate Bernie Sanders. So, so now, in reality, the way a lot of the burners, the Bernie Sanders people see it is, the DNC is not attacking Bernie Sanders. They're attacking us. They're attacking the voters. In fact, Barack Obama said, look, if Bernie Sanders runs away with it, if all of you voters out there decide that you want him, well, then I'll have to step in and make sure that you can't have him. So in reality, because Bernie carries a movement with him uh, and, and, and a new and very young and very motivated movement with him, they're not attacking Bernie. They're attacking this movement. And I think Bernie is kind of uh, protected by his movement movement to some, to, at least in the short run, to some extent, from these media. You'll notice, Bernie picks up numbers every time Warren attacks him. Everybody that attacks him, he gets more votes. So uh, I, I think there's a far different dynamic. And those who think that they're going to play the, the, the Jeremy Corbyn, uh, uh, um, you know, moves on Bernie are very, very misguided. Even the, uh, the uh, um, playbook attack uh, on the anti-Semitism issue. Uh, that uh, caused fatal damage to Corbyn has backfired uh, on APAC in the United States, where they launched a kind of Corbyn-style attack on Sanders and the radicals in the Democratic Party. They've had to back down and apologize for it, showing that if you stand up and fight back, then you have a chance to win. Isn't that right? Yes, and the other thing they have is what Bernie has is, and you know, there are a lot of people that are that are upset. Well, the Bernie Sanders people online, they're you know, they're crass, they're angry, they fight back. Well, that's Bernie's strength because Bernie really, I mean, he doesn't have to mix it up. There are people online, there are pundits, there are um, there's an entire section of new media that's pro Bernie. So Bernie, when when Bernie's attacked, there is an attack force out there of real people not bots, real people that go back and fight for him. And as I said, Bernie's a different animal because he has this angry online and offline army that's willing to stand up and throw punches back. And, and, and I think that's one of the things they didn't see coming. So what happens uh, in New Hampshire? What's the uh, current state of the betting there, Garland? I'm looking, so uh, just to say myself, I'm looking 
that probably I'm looking at Bernie with a, a double digit win. Let's not forget that's where he started the big blowout. So I'm looking at a double digit uh, a win for Bernie. Now they're making a big deal out of Buttigieg. Even if Buttigieg has a good, uh, you know, let's say he gets 20 percent or he comes in second. There's nothing. He starts to disappear after that. He's a flash in the pan. And as I said, if you look at the numbers after after New Hampshire, I don't see what their plan is for Buttigieg from then on. Not many people on this side of the water have ever heard of this guy or can even pronounce his name. Tell us something about him. Well, the thing about a lot is coming out about uh, Pete Buttigieg now, and one of the, the nicknames that he has is the Juan Guaido of American politics, in that um, he was, he, the guy's a mayor of a town where there's 100,000 people, and former, he expects to become president mayor. with 330 million people. Isn't he, isn't he the uh, former mayor? Yeah, former, exactly, he's, former he, mayor. He's the former that. mayor of the fourth largest city in Indiana. Yes, and he has some very uncomfortable ties to the intelligence community. So there are a lot of people who are looking at this guy who are very concerned about his ties to the intelligence community, who's looking at what happened in Iowa, how he was intricately involved in this shysty shadow app. And so the questions are rising about him, but I don't think that's going to matter because even with all of that said, if you look at the numbers for Pete Buttigieg after New Hampshire, they just start to crater. There's nothing for him in the long run. Even if there's nothing else bad about him, he's just not making a case to the American working person that uh, would 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 uh, be something that would they would want to vote for. Would be a reason that they want to vote for him. Now, uh, Warren and Biden, both their campaigns are in trouble if they do badly in New Hampshire, aren't they? Yeah, well, you know, generally Iowa and New Hampshire cleans out the uh, cleans out the riffraff, as they say, for this reason. Because at that point, you have um, you have a, a, a lot of donors, very very wealthy donors, who are making investments. And after the first two states, they start thinking, well, you know, these investments aren't looking so good with someone who doesn't have the numbers. And so I think this, not for Bernie, Bernie people, they don't have much in the first place. They're giving them five, ten, twenty dollars, and they can do it over and over and over. But for some of these other people who have the big donors, yes, they're don't. And the reason is donors. Once a donor sees their investment starting to fall apart, they look for somewhere else to put their money. And uh, Warren is the senator for the next door. She must have started out thinking she could win New Hampshire. Now she she must be uh, hoping she'll be third. Yeah, well, you know, things are getting kind of desperate uh, for Elizabeth Warren, and I don't expect her to be around much longer. If you look at that, here's the interesting thing. If you look at the candidates around um, Bernie Sanders, after New Hampshire, there aren't many viable candidates left. If you look after New Hampshire, it starts to look like a really ugly blowout um, uh, 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 for Bernie Sanders. So I don't see how many of these people stick around. I think there's going to be maybe Bernie and a couple people. In fact, um, that's why they're going to Bloomberg probably, and they're looking at Bloomberg, because the rest of these people won't be able to raise any funds. He'll be the only one left that can self-fund, and he is the perfect target. They're setting up a perfect target for Bernie. Sanders to point at this billionaire and say nothing. He's just going to stand on stage. Bernie will just probably stand on stage and just point at him and just go like this. <laughs> and of course, if Bloomberg was the nominee, that would be two New York billionaires fighting out in November. That would be a great picture, wouldn't it? 
It would be very interesting, but here's what I learned from, from, from Bloomberg. Think about this. We're, we're reading all of these articles about, you know, the, the, the Democratic Party insiders, the elitists are looking for a plan. Think about how out of touch these people are. They look at Bernie Sanders and their plan is Mike Bloomberg and Deval Patrick. If you think that Mike Bloomberg or Deval Patrick is a valid option for voters to Bernie Sanders, you have no chance of beating Bernie Sanders because you are so out of touch with the voters that you're stumbling around, you know, like, a, I mean, you're just stumbling around lost. So in a way, it's a good sign because what are they going to come up with next? You know, a Donald Trump Jr., I guess. Maybe they'll figure, well, if we can't beat him with a Trump, we'll get a, a second Trump. Yeah, uh, now, you know, you, you brushed that aside, but is there any possibility of Hillary Clinton deciding that, uh, you know, I, ca I can't stand by and allow uh, Bernie Sanders to, uh, to walk this? Uh, I'm going to enter the race and claim what was my, uh, what was my entitlement back in uh, 2016. Any chance of that? Well, you know, I would have said no. Uh, you know, a couple of months ago, I would have said no, these people aren't this stupid. But what, after I've seen what I've seen in Iowa and their plan to bring in Deval Patrick and Bloomberg, yeah, they're that stupid, sadly. So the fact of the matter is, they may come out and say, well, you know, we'll, we'll go with Hillary. What could possibly go wrong there? But the only way they could get a Hillary in would be on the convention floor yeah. to put Hillary in who only knows, knows who else in. But, but I, I think they do it because based on the um, errors that they've made now, based on the grand mistakes that they've made, nothing they do shocks me. If you can come up with any idea that's so absurd and stupid that everyone in a pub would laugh at it, then that's probably the plan that these idiots will come up with. <laughs> Garland Nixon, a brilliant spot. Thanks very much indeed for kicking off the mother of all talk shows. Talk to you again after New Hampshire. Now here's the poll results uh, so far. Following Sinn Féin's success, will there be a united Ireland in A, 10 years, 54%, B, 20 years, 15%, C, never, 31%. That last one is down four. The 10-year option is up one, and the 20-year option is up three. There's lots still to come on the mother of all talk shows. Radio Sputnik. We speak your language. Find us at SputnikNews.com. Tune in every Thursday to Loud and Clear with Brian Becker for the regular segment called Veterans for Peace, where we focus on the contemporary issues of war and peace that affect veterans, their families, the country, and the world as a whole. Veterans for Peace President Jerry Condon joins the show every Thursday. Hear about this and more every Thursday right here on Radio Sputnik. We are above all the latest developments, and we don't take any sides. Radio Sputnik, telling the untold. The mother of all talk shows. With George Galloway, the world is our classroom, and you're welcome to sit in and join the seminar. Lenny Harry says George hates imperialism, but loves it when applied to Scotland. What does that even mean, Lenny? What does that even mean? Scotland voted in a national referendum 
by 55 to 45 to remain a part of Britain. Scotland is not a colony, never has been a colony. In fact, Scotland colonized. I just told you a few minutes ago, the first people from this part of the world to colonize Ireland were the Scots. Scotland and England together colonized most of the world. Scotland was an indispensable part of and beneficiary of the British Empire. Scotland has a right to self-determination. It exercised that right in a referendum and voted against separatism, against the partition of this small island. I'm willing to bet, Lenny Henry, that you're against the partition of the small island across the water. But in favor of partitioning this small island, go figure, or even better, call me. Come and have a go if you think you're hard enough. Don't bring up a false name and send me a puerile insult like that. Come on air, call me, and let's have this matter out. Now, as I told you earlier, I was in Russia this week. I made a shot there. Take a look. Under reconstruction, the famous St. Basil's Cathedral here in Red Square in Moscow. It's eight degrees below zero, but the sun is out and it's beginning to thaw. A suitable metaphor, hopefully, for Britain's permafrost relations with Russia. The straw in the wind this week was that some of the EU sanctions against Russia will be lifted by the British government now that we have left the EU, now that Brexit is a reality. To be sure, it's very small beer or small iron, steel and aluminium coil, but it's the first lifting of sanctions in Britain against Russia for a very long time. In fact, I've lost count of the number of sanctions and hostile acts and statements that have been made by British government officials, ministers, even prime ministers over the last few years. The proximate cause of that was, of course, the Scripple affair. And to be sure, it was a grisly affair. Although the rush to judgment of Prime Minister Theresa May might come back to haunt the British government in the way that the fake allegations over Duma and the non-existent chemical weapons attack by the Syrian government is beginning to do through the OPCW. But whether or not the British were right in their interpretation of what happened over Scripple, I'm here in Red Square to argue that it's time for a page to be turned because all wars, all conflicts have to end sometime. And it's time to end the Cold War conflict between Britain and Russia. After all, we have now slipped our moorings out of the EU and have set sail for the world, rebuilding old relationships. Russia is a critically important potential partner. Moscow is the biggest city in Europe. 
Russia is the biggest country in Europe. Russia's is the biggest economy in Europe. It makes no sense from even a business, never mind a political point of view, to have virtually zero relations with a country as important as that in our own continent, least of all when we have left the EU. So I'm hoping those straws in the wind, this thaw which you are beginning to see around me now, this reconstruction that you can see going on behind me is a useful metaphor for Britain's relations with the Russian Federation. It's true that on many important foreign policy issues like Syria, like even going back to the Iraq war, the British and the Russian policies don't meet, don't match. But you know, it won't be long before there's a new policy towards Moscow in Washington, either because Donald Trump has been re-elected to a second term and can begin to act according to his instincts rather than the pack of hyenas who've been chasing him over relations with Russia since the beginning of his presidency, or because Bernie Sanders, the man who used to holiday in the Soviet Union, is the president. It won't be long before, without Britain, influence inside the EU, countries like Germany begin to warm up their relations with Russia too. So Britain shouldn't be left at the starting post. I think Boris Johnson should make trail for here, Red Square, Moscow, as soon as possible. Get to the bottom of the issues that divide us and begin a new era, begin to reconstruct Anglo-Russian relations. Have something to say? Do you disagree with George? Then call us now and give us your view. Yes, if you disagree with me, call me. If you can't call, won't call, then write to me. As many, many people have, Duke Salad says, cold viruses are coronaviruses. This one is obviously different. Knowledgeable people suspect it's a bioweapon. The US has legalized bioweapons in the form of viruses, etc. Well, let me tell you, Duke, I have absolutely no evidence whatsoever, but I suspect the very same thing. Peter O'Kenla says, can someone explain to me the Irish elections? What's the significance of Sinn Féin winning? Well, uh, our very considerable expert, Kevin Marr, will be up in a minute to do that. Kinky says, go Sinn Féin, Ireland unite. John Maloney says, if you're watching the Irish election, big gains for Sinn Féin despite the best efforts of the media. And Gary Woods says all Labour needs now is for Keir, the anti-Brexit secretary, Starmer, to really get behind Britain rejoining the EU again. Labour polling will start flying up. That red wall will be on its way to being rebuilt before we know it. And Sam Lewis says, love the new aesthetics of your show, George. Very fancy. Yeah, let me know uh, if you like them. Uh, or not. On the Irish election, Donny Gall Boy says, because of the insanity of partition, my sister must travel four and a half hours to Galway for cancer treatment from West Donegal, rather than say an hour or two to Derry or Belfast. Unity is logical on every level. 
better medal with a deal than the Bairns O'Fall says hopefully we'll get United Ireland and an independent Scotland full steam ahead with liberty. And Lizzie says the Sinn Féin leader could have been Taoiseach if they had fielded more candidates. But they're more right wing than the DUP, I hear. Oh, I don't know where you got that, Lizzie. Sean in Antrim says there will never be a United Ireland, George. There are too many undecided voters who would most likely vote for the union if it meant keeping free healthcare, trash collections and banking. Also in the Republic of Ireland, it would mean massive tax rises. Northern Ireland is expensive. Don't we know it, Sean? BR says, who knows when Ireland will unite? But I doubt there will ever be a truly united Ireland, more likely to be UK Republic Ireland power sharing. And an email. <clears throat> a quick look into the Pete Buttigieg tells you he has strong ties to the CIA and that his Marxist father died of a mysterious illness the year he began his campaign for president. <coughs> Pardon me, when he was interviewed in his home, he had a mineral resource map of Afghanistan hanging up. His mother says she doesn't know if he cries. He also plans to introduce national military service in support of American imperialism to all high schoolers but he usually refuses to answer questions on foreign policy. It was one of the most surreal things I had ever seen. Last Monday, when in Iowa, he clearly attempted to rig the contest and declare victory early while exploiting identity politics to appease liberals. This man has gone from being an opportunist chameleon to being outright terrifying. He's a textbook psychopath, if I have ever seen one. He will do and say anything to get into power. I'm sure he would strangle his own mother for one extra vote. Thank God he's as unelectable as his British equivalent, Sir Keir Starmer. Thank you. Thank you, John. Uh, hello, my friend. Fianna Foyle are frothing at the mouth for a Sinn Féin Fianna Foyle coalition. But ideally, a Sinn Féin coalition with left-wing parties, like People Before Profit, Social Democrats, the Greens and some independents, would be a much better arrangement. I hear that Leo has donned his blue shirt and is heading for the EU HQ. Border poll now. Take care. That's from our uh, long-standing friend, uh, Alex McGuigan in Belfast, though he's currently in Malinhead. Uh, Sue from Stafford says, I take barely even a first thought in nominating Julian Assange as the first hero for the Hall of Fame. My reason? Anything other is unthinkable. I find his situation in my mind and heart every day. Well, you'll hear in the final hour who my nomination is. First nomination for a place in the Hall of Fame. Let's hear from Robert in East London who wants a fight with me on a Scottish referendum. On you go, Robert. <laughs> go, go, go right ahead. Go right good ahead, evening, George. Good evening. Doing? Yeah, good, thanks. Good, good, good. It's just my... Um Watching you over the past months, how you were a champion for Brexit and champion democracy and, and allowing people to have a say and to vote themselves out of the European Union, I'm finding it very hard to somehow get your grasp on why Scotland shouldn't be have a vote for independence. Yes, I agree they had one before and they voted to remain, but things have changed. The demographics uh, of change of England, and it would be correct to give Scotland that choice if they wanted to stay or go. Robert, 
I am gagging for another Scottish referendum. You've just not been listening. I'm demanding another Scottish independence referendum. I'm fighting for another Scottish independence referendum. I love referenda. I always win them. I'm raring to go. Which part of that didn't you grasp? But I will fight for the British people to remain united in that referendum. Is that your problem? No, my problem is, is the fact that you, you seem to be like, well, okay, let them have a, you know, why, why would they want to not have a referendum? No, let them I, have a referendum, let them sort it out amongst themselves. Because I want a referendum. Robert, I want <laughs> a referendum. Let me put that in capital letters. I say, I say, come and have a go, Nicola Sturgeon, if you think you're hard enough. <laughs> if, you think the, if you think this year of 2020, which is shaping up already to be an annus miserabilis for the SNP, if you think this is your year, go ahead, come on, let's have it out in another referendum. Let's go with it. We can squeeze it in between the Mackay catastrophe of last week, the mm -hmm. Alex Salmon trial of next week. Uh, we, could screw, we could find a place for it in this crowded year. Let's right. do it. I'm in favour of it. The Scottish people have every right to decide any time they like, as often as they like, whether they wish to remain in a voluntary union with the people of England and Wales. Right. I, think, I think that's a position you could support. Yeah, I could support that. I, could, um, I fully agree with that. But it, it just seems the way you're coming across is you've had one. Why do you want another one? No. no if, you're, if you're a regular listener, you'll know that I, I want another referendum. Because I, I, I think there's a law of diminishing returns, Robert. I think you can go to the well as often as you like, but don't expect there to be the same amount of water in it if you keep going back too often. And Correct. a law of diminishing returns will set in. But I agree with you. Things have changed since the last referendum. That's why I fully support another one. Well, I agree with that. But do you see, do you see the Scottish people following the UK and voting themselves away from the Union of United Kingdom? No. I think the, the result of 55-45 will be more or less exactly the same again. And by today's standards, that's a big majority. Robert, thanks for the call. Wasn't much of a fight, but that's what I was promised. Online too. New Orleans, Taris. Go ahead, Taris. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Yes, good afternoon to you, sir. What would you like to say? I will talk about Bernie Sanders and Trump debating. Yeah. I can't give you... Um, the hashtag is not rock Russia, it's the DNC, all right? I'm hearing a little back feed. No, that's all right. We can okay. hear you. We can hear you fine. Okay, here I go. So they had a senator in Louisiana called Huey Long. Huey Long, Huey Long was the one that came up with an infrastructure program, Social Security, and things like that, and giving books to white children and black children. And you know, he was very loved in the state of Louisiana. He built the first bridge across the Mississippi River, the tallest tower in the northern hemisphere, man-man tower. He was the only man that can beat oh, FDR. FDR, what he done was well, a good thing. He took his ideas and he implemented Social Security 
and other things like that in Glass-Steagall. They're afraid, wants to get Bernie Sanders on stage, that the narrative of control will basically be hard now because you have two men that go off the cuff and, sit and speak their mind, speak their heart, right? Now, even though I'm a Trump supporter, I also like Bernie Sanders, right? Bernie Sanders is going to talk about Wall Street. He's going to talk about tax on Wall Street, Glass-Steagall, infrastructure, and um, helping out people with medical, Medicare for all. What that's going to do, that's going to force Trump's hand, I feel to believe, my opinion, to implement some of those policies so he can get uh, reelected again. Because he know Bernie Sanders is one tough cookie. It doesn't matter if Bernie Sanders is 77 years old. He's one tough cookie, right? So what they're doing, they're fighting Bernie Sanders in every state now. They're cheating him with that app. Ain't no such thing. They could have had the uh, poll managers at each precinct call in the numbers. They didn't do it. So they, this is a created chaos to slow down the momentum of Bernie Sanders and put in somebody, you know, like y'all say, like Pete, uh, well, excuse me, uh, Bloomberg, which is another George Soros. And basically, that's what he is. So Trump and Bernie Sanders, they do not want to see those two. They are, they're already having a hard time controlling Trump, but them two on stage mm -hmm. going at it. Mm -hmm. That's very, ideas. very, that's very, very interesting. You're right. Uh, there, there, there could be a, a rather dangerous auction in uh, populist uh, politics uh, between Trump and uh, Sanders. Allow me to ask you, though, uh, what are your main reasons for being a Donald Trump supporter? Now, I feel to believe, it's it just conjecture, just speculation, that by Trump kind of taking on the deep state, the, the shadowy government, that the military and some people in the intelligence community is helping them out. If Bernie Sanders get in there, I, may, I don't think they're going to help him out as if, I mean, they're not going to help him out as much as Donald Trump, President Donald Trump, because they see Bernie Sanders as too left-wing. So if Bernie Sanders get in, I don't have no problem with it, but the deep state going to attack him. They're going to come at him from all angles, just like they did with Jeremy Corbyn. They're already, they, how can you call, they call him a Jewish man, Andy Sandman. They're starting to come out with that now. Well, it's, okay? it, it happens here every day. Uh, the, 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 the most culturally significant Jewish man in Britain, Professor Mike Rosen, the former uh, laureate for children, has just been denounced uh, by the... Uh, supporters of Israel here in Britain as an anti-Semite. Loads of Jewish people have been expelled out of the Labour Party as anti-Semites. It is one of the most intellectually perverse, bonkers ideas. But it's happening now to Bernie. You may be a Jew, but you're an anti-Semite Jew. Unbelievable. Um, yes, sir. It's, it's, it's wrong because... We as human beings, we must stick together on this planet. By laboring each other with racist terms and this and that and other, it's um, slowing down progress in this country, slowing down progress in Britain and also Europe. Hallelujah. The world. That is a wonderful you know, call. Uh, don't be a stranger. Call back uh, any time. But I've now got to throw to the news with Emily Horn. Curious about our curriculum? Have something to say? Then call us now to join the debate on the mother of all talk shows with George Galloway. 
Tune in every Tuesday to Loud and Clear for a regular segment called False Profits, a weekly look at Wall Street and corporate capitalism, where we talk about the big economic issues of the week from the point of view of working people, the poor, and the U.S. position in the global economy. Join us this Tuesday and every Tuesday with financial policy analyst Daniel Sankey right here on Radio Sputnik. It's time to double down with Max and Stacy. Yeah, double down. We're talking markets, finance, business, economics, ka-ching, bling, just about everything money-related on Sputnik. It's called Double Down. We're asking, are dead cats bouncing or have fundamentals changed? That's this week on Double Down. Radio Sputnik. We speak your language. Find us at SputnikNews.com. Radio Sputnik News. Counting is continuing in the Irish general election as a respected exit poll has put the three main political parties tied in first preference votes. Ballot boxes from across the 39 constituencies were opened at 9 o'clock this morning. Indications from the poll suggest there is little difference in percentage terms between Finney Gale, Sinn Féin and Fianna Foyle. However, early tallies at count centres suggest a Sinn Féin surge forward. Polling in the election closed at 10 p.m. last night. It appears unlikely that any party will have a clear majority, so another coalition government is probable, although the composition is still unclear. Both Finney Gale and Fianna Foyle say they would not enter coalition with Sinn Féin. Next, thousands of people stuck on a cruise ship in Hong Kong for four days are being allowed to disembark after tests for coronavirus have come back negative. Some 3,600 passengers and crew on the World Dream ship were quarantined amid fears some staff could have contracted the virus on a previous voyage. Another cruise ship where dozens of cases have been confirmed remains in quarantine off Japan. The outbreak has killed 813 people, all but two in mainland China. The coronavirus has now killed more people than the SARS epidemic in 2003. In the Chinese province of Hubei alone, the epicenter of the coronavirus outbreak, the death toll is now put at 780 by regional health officials. More than 34,800 people have been infected worldwide, the vast majority in China. Next, residents of the Thai city of Nakhon Ratchasima have been reliving their ordeal after a gunman roamed around a shopping center on a shooting spree that killed 29 people. Some barricaded themselves in toilets or hid under tables, frantically searching for information on mobiles. Jakrafan Thirtama began his rampage on Saturday afternoon, but it ended 16 hours later with his death. A vigil for victims has been held with monks chanting prayers. The 32-year-old soldier who had posted images during his attack on social media appeared to have been motivated by a land dispute. Another 57 people were injured in the incident. He began his attack at around 3.30 local time on Saturday at a military camp, but it was his arrival at Terminal 21 shopping complex that led to an indiscriminate shooting spree. Many of the victims were killed as he arrived, some in their cars, others outside the complex. Graphic images appeared on social media. 
and severe gales and heavy rain are sweeping across the UK as travelers face disruption from Storm Sierra. There is widespread flooding and a severe weather warning in place in North Yorkshire, meaning a danger to life. Thousands of people are without electricity and sporting fixtures have been cancelled due to the deteriorating conditions. Airlines have cancelled dozens of flights, while several rail firms have urged passengers not to travel. The main lines between England and Scotland are suspended. Ferry passengers also face delays and cancellations, while drivers have been warned to take extra care. Large parts of the UK are covered by an amber warning for very strong winds, with gusts reaching more than 90 miles per hour in some places. Sporting events which have been called off because of adverse weather include Manchester City's Premier League game against West Ham. However, the exceptionally strong winds ensured that a British Airways flight became the fastest subsonic New York to London journey ever. The Boeing 747 reached speeds of 825 miles per hour as it rode the jet stream accelerated by Storm Sierra. The four-hour and 56-minute flight arrived at Heathrow Airport 80 minutes ahead of schedule this morning. And finally, one of the world's best-known double acts, Tom and Jerry, turn 80 this week. The cartoon duo was dreamt up out of desperation. MGM's animation department, where creators Bill Hanna and Joe Barbera worked, had struggled to emulate the success of other studios who had hit characters like Porky Pig and Mickey Mouse. While out of boredom, the animators, both aged under 30, began thinking up their own ideas. Barbera said he loved the simple concept of a cat and mouse cartoon with conflict and chase, even though it had been done countless times before. Puss Gets the Boot was the first they released in 1940. The debut was a hit and won the studio an Oscar nomination for Best Animated Short. Despite their work, the animators were not credited. The Oscars, of course, takes place in Los Angeles tonight, with the British film 1917 hotly tipped in several categories, while the Best Actor Oscar is likely to go to Joaquin Phoenix. Well, that's all for Sputnik News. I'm Emily Horn. listening to Radio Sputnik, telling the untold. Welcome to the Open University of the Airwaves with George Galloway, only on Sputnik Radio. Following Sinn Féin's success in the Irish elections, will there be a United Ireland in A, 10 years, 55%, up one, B, 20 years, 14%, down one, C, never, 31%, no change. You can vote now on my Twitter feed, at George Galloway. Now, as I said earlier, I've been on four aeroplanes in the last few days, and I can tell you, uh, traveling with a woman who looks Chinese uh, certainly attracts some startled looks. It may have been her beauty, it may have been her grace, it may have been her overall wondrousness, but as people gazed as we walked past wondering why she wasn't wearing a mask, I've got to tell you that the panic over the coronavirus is now endemic, even if the virus is not. Although, if not endemic, it is widespread. Now, I put my cards on the table. I think that China has reacted in a way which no other country in the world is currently capable of reacting to this devastating health emergency. I believe that reflects the strong central state that 
is a hallmark of the People's Republic of China. I believe it reflects their centrally planned economy where the state has the decisive role in economic and social life in the country. I believe that's why China will defeat the coronavirus. But there are people, and uh, they have a point of view, have a case, I think, that say in the early days of the emergence of this coronavirus, China made some important mistakes in trying to cover it up and trying to uh, shoot the piano player and trying to uh, shoot the messenger uh, in the early days and that they have not done as well in fighting this virus as people like me think that they have. On FaceTime now, we have Tom McGregor uh, of CCTV.com, a commentator and editor based in China. Tom, a very big welcome to you. Thanks for joining us. Do we have Tom? All right, we've lost that line. We'll try and get him back. George, I nominate ex-Rangers owner Craig White for your wall of fame, says Kevin. Kevin, that would take a bit of translating for the international audience. And Dave says, do you know why Peter Lavelle doesn't have you on his crosstalk show more often? Uh, thanks greatly, mate. Well, I, I'm actually quite often on crosstalk, but I'm currently on RT seven days a week, seven days a week, every week. So I don't know, perhaps another show with my face on it isn't the best idea. Uh, Tom says, as it's Irish election day, my recommendation for the Hall of Fame is James Connolly. He fought and died for not just a free Ireland, but for a free Ireland run by the working class for the working class. Not only that, he was a spectacular socialist who was even respected by figures such as Lenin. He was a true legend, says Tom. Indeed so, Tom. One of my biggest heroes. Uh, Ray Jones says, my sincere hope is that Ireland becomes unified. Vote to leave the EU and become our staunchest ally. A tall order, perhaps, but I'm sure the people of both our countries want that to happen. Violence will never work, and talking is the only way to go forward. I pray to God that both our governments see that this is the future, and the only thing we argue about is the price of beef or whiskey, or even the spelling of whiskey. I love Ireland and visit a couple of times a year to Tipperary, and must say the Irish are the most welcoming people in the world. God bless them. Uh, George, I love the new opening graphics in the Moats YouTube telecast. In explaining the results of the Irish election, you mentioned the relative success of nationalist parties. Can you address two points? One, that history is rebalancing the tilt towards reunification and in favour of those with an EU bent. Two, that not unlike yourself, access to the internet may well have allowed the hitherto sanctioned parties to break through the wall of silence imposed by imperialist forces. Also, please wish your pal Brian Travers a happy 61st birthday for the 7th of February. That's for from Will in Singapore. Brian, I know you're watching. A happy 61st. Now, I thought you were 51, not 61. Tom is there now on the line. Tom uh, McGregor in China from uh, the CCTV.com. Uh, Welcome to the mother of all talk shows. Thank you. I'm glad, I'm glad you invited me.
No, Tom, uh, I, I put my cards on the table. I think that uh, China has not only handled the coronavirus magnificently, but is the only country in the world that is currently capable of uh, reacting to such an emergency in such a way. Uh, but there have been criticisms. How does it look to you from China? How much self-criticism is permitted in China about the handling of this affair? Well, you know, nothing's, nobody's perfect and no government is perfect. And obviously, at the beginning, there were a few delays in how China was handling the virus. But you got to understand that a lot of times when you hear media stories about the virus, there's always talk, oh, there's going to be another pandemic. And then it never turns out that way. Well, in this case, it almost turned into a pandemic. And so the moment China realized that, then they were very serious and then they put in the quarantines and they they did a lot to, uh, and they're also working with who? Uh, there's all these claims that they're, China's not working with who. That's nonsense. They're very, they're working closely with a lot of governments and a lot of countries and a lot of, uh, a lot of people uh, as well. So what's really going on is that the media, especially the Western media, the British media, as well as the American media have been very hard hitting on the Chinese, and this is not the right time for it. No, uh, in fact, uh, the first action of the uh, British and American governments was to contribute to a sense of panic, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, instead they, of they uh, flying, instead of flying in uh, help, they were flying out uh, as quickly exactly. as they possibly could, shutting their consulates and so on. I was very upset about that. I, it was funny because my wife is Chinese and she was asking, and what's going on? Why are they sending Americans out? And I said, I'm not leaving. Unless, I'm, I'm here. There, there's no reason for, for creating this kind of panic because if somebody likes me, I'm working in the media uh, and, and I'm leaving China, then, then people are going to get real nervous. So I'm not leaving. And, and I have a Chinese wife. She's a Chinese citizen. We have a son here. We're here in Beijing. And we have no plans to leave or, or, or run out of here. Uh, we're going to do our best. Uh, we have a quarantine right now. Uh, we do have to work at home, and we, it's, you can't really do much outside. But the fact is, is, is this is, you know, we're just trying to help do our part to help. And if we were to travel, we're putting people at risk. I mean, I'm not sick. I'm healthy. My family's healthy. But you never know because there's a, it takes a, a two-week incubation period. So the best thing to do is just stay indoors and, and just, uh, you know, bear it in silence. And, and China will overcome this. Well, your wife is Chinese. My wife looks Chinese, at least to the yeah. uneducated. And as sure. we were traveling through... Uh, through Switzerland, uh, Zurich Airport, uh, but also uh, at Heathrow. Uh, we were guaranteed the best seat in the house everywhere we went because people actually now move away from you if you look Chinese <laughs> and you're I'm not, not surprised. wearing a mask. I know. I'm not surprised by that. And it's not a Chinese virus, by the way. No. And, and what we is need it, to know, Tom? We what? need to let people know about that, yeah. that it's not just a Chinese virus. Yeah, I got hit in China. But there's always other viruses that happen in Africa, in America. Uh, recently, I, I found out some statistics that in America, this flu virus has killed thousands of people, a whole lot more than what, what the coronavirus is doing. And I even knew of people on my Facebook who, who I personally knew, and they had family members who were killed by this flu. So this is no joking matter. Uh, these viruses are, are, are killing people, and it's dangerous. And I think part of it is just that 
it, it was bound to happen. You know, you're going to have these kind of super bugs and, and they're going to, they're going to spread and it, it's inevitable. It's, this is not just a case of it's a Chinese virus. Uh, it can happen in any other country as well. What do you know about the virus? I mean, neither of us are doctors, Tom. Sure, but, I know. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not a scientist. Is it, uh, is, is it entirely novel or is it closely related to previously seen viruses? Well, there's 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 diff different theories, and 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 you also have some crackpot conspiracy theories that there's some, you know, uh, Wuhan had some type of uh, bio weapons. Uh, you know, it, it, you're you're gonna it, it's a little bit tricky because as a scientist, I, I would not know exactly what type of uh, virus it is and, and the specifics of it, but whatever whatever it is, and they said that there was some pangolin animal that somehow was a carrier of it. But the thing is, the scientists are still working on trying to figure that out. And when they figure that out, then that can help with finding a vaccine and finding some cure for it. Because you have to find out what exactly the illness is so you can address it directly. And the Chinese are working really hard on that in Wuhan, as well as in Shanghai and Beijing. Uh, all, all the scientists and medical staff are acting in a very heroic manner to, to handle the coronavirus right now. I mean, we only eat uh, nice animals like uh, cows and lambs and oh, fish okay. and chicken and yeah, turkey yeah. and, uh, yeah. and uh, yeah. uh, uh, pigs. Uh, we, we only eat these animals. The Chinese, on the other hand, <laughs> they eat a whole different kind of animal. And well, that is one uh, of the, uh, I, one like of the racist uh, tropes yeah, uh, like here. Address, address that. that. Yeah, yeah we're, not, we're not eating monkeys. We're not eating bats. Uh, this theory that that the Chinese love eating bats or monkeys. I have lived in China for 10 years. I have never witnessed at any time some a Chinese person, and, and I have a Chinese wife who's eaten monkeys or bats. I mean, that that's a joke. And I think you do have maybe some of these wildlife uh, places. It's possible that they were exotic animals and some of the people wanted to have them as pets. But I really doubt that they were cooking them for dinner. That's that's total nonsense. I have not. I don't know anyone who 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 does who has these kind of dietary habits in China. I have not met, and I have spent a lot of time in rural areas as well. My wife is from the rural area. They don't eat bats. They don't eat monkeys. That's that's nonsense. It's racist as well. No. And the British media is the one who was posting that kind of nonsense. The Daily Mail and all this. Uh, the Sun. I mean, crazy articles that they were posting. I uh, I read somewhere that there was a hundred thousand foreigners in Wuhan just prior mm -hmm. to the outbreak of the epidemic for for some sports uh, festival. I think uh, is that a fact? And could that have anything yeah, to do I, with I this? Yeah, I think it, there, there's probably some truth to it. You got to also realize that before the quarantine was in effect, as I mentioned earlier. You know, sometimes you hear of a bug and then there's a few media stories, but it's a lot of times like, you know, the boy who cried wolf. Are you really sure this is the real deal this time? And so it took about a week or two before the Wuhan officials realized that this was a really serious virus. And during that week or two, if there were major events, they were not stopped. So, yes, I do believe that was a, a strong possibility. Now, uh What's the prognosis? Is this going to get much worse before it gets better? Have we reached peak coronavirus yet? Yeah, I've seen I've seen some articles. They said that it's going to be another week of of some higher numbers, 
uh, at most, but this was 10 days ago. So they said set a week to 10, uh, 10 days, you're going to have a, a higher numbers every day, more people dying. And then it's going to reach, say, that inflection point where then it starts to be a little bit of a decline. But the good news right now is that more people are being cured and and released from the hospital who were di first diagnosed with the illness than people who are dying. So that's already good news is that a lot of people are already being treated and they are able to leave the hospital and return to their home in a very healthy state. Tom McGregor, thanks for joining us. Stay healthy, you and your family, and best wishes to all the people in China. Thanks for joining us. Let's take a quick break. Radio Sputnik. We call Fault Lines with Nixon and Stranahan the most disruptive radio show in America. It's a great show and we have a lot of fun. We come to you live from Washington, D.C. every Monday through Friday morning. What I like best is that we bring in experts from all over the world. From Barcelona, from Egypt, from Seoul, South Korea. From Newark, New Jersey. We try to bring people great guests, great calls from our listeners, and of course, stupid jokes. And we do it with two hosts that have very different viewpoints. Now, here's the thing, Garland. A lot of people would think you and I would just argue. I mean, I'm a Republican Trump supporter. And, of course, I am a progressive Democrat Bernie Sanders supporter. The surprising thing is how much we actually agree on. And you won't be surprised because you're going to find out just how much you agree and just how much you enjoy this show. The mother of all talk shows. Join our faculty of legends, contributors, and callers. Everyone is welcome. Greetings, Mr. Galloway. As you have baptized me, the only Thatcherite in Glasgow, as per my previous challenge to you, I put forward the late, great Baroness Margaret Thatcher for the Hall of Fame. You may argue the wall of shame for her. The Iron Lady achieved a first first female leader of the Conservative and Unionist Party, the first female Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. She stood up to mob rule and castrated the trade unions, holding the UK to ransom. She personified the British bulldog spirit in standing up to Argentina and the invasion of the Falklands. She stood up to terrorists, such as the Iranians in the embassy siege, and continued to hold her party conference after the Brighton bombing. She has done more to shape UK politics than anyone in our history. She has shown many little girls around the world that women can achieve the highest office. Thatcher was also instrumental in bringing down the Iron Curtain and the Berlin Wall by courting Gorbachev. She richly deserves a place in your Hall of Fame. That's from Paul Benny. B-E-N-N-I-E, -N -N -E. Benny Hill, I think. Never mind Paul Benny. Uh, Paul, you're going to have to call me and have this matter out. Uh, whether Mrs. Thatcher should be on the wall of shame or in the hall of fame. But thanks for listening, watching anyway. Uh, I remind you, if you're watching on Facebook or on Twitter, please share with your friends and contacts, please. RJ says, Ireland will unite in 15 years, I think. There would have to be an ongoing majority for a united Ireland within Northern Ireland for a few years, plus time factored in for political wrangling in London and Dublin. Let's go to Sweden and talk to Matthew about China. Go ahead, Matthew. Hi there, George. How are you doing? 
By the grace of God, I'm good. I wasn't far away from you uh, just earlier uh, this week in St. Petersburg. Go ahead. Oh, yeah. 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 Just on the uh, on the coronavirus, um, I thought it was interesting to listen to uh, Tom McGregor yeah. from CCTV just now. And obviously he's in China. I'm not. So, you know, he's more of an expert on what's going on. But, uh, you know, when he said that it was, uh, you know, bound to happen, inevitable, it just struck me as a, a little bit um, dismissive, perhaps, because uh, you know, if, if it turns out, as seems to be the case, although we can't be sure that this has come from pangolins, uh, these are, uh, you know, animals that are protected under international law. And uh, there's huge, huge demand in China and Vietnam for these animals, um, which are illegally harvested in parts of Africa, put into tiny cages and then sent off to, like, yeah, China, Vietnam. What uh, are they, for, Matthew? Uh, what are pangolins and, and what do people use them well, for? Well, they're, they're, they're small mammals and they kind of scuttle around uh, on the forest floors of uh, uh, not exactly sure, various parts of Africa, and uh, they're um, they're completely defenseless to human beings. But um, because they they're covered in these hard scales made from keratin, like fingernails, uh, they um, they have no natural predators in the wild. But um, like I say, largely driven by uh, Chinese medicine, uh, they are um, they're threatened now. In fact, threatened with extinction because there's such a drive. I think partly it comes down to the fact that, you know, China, you know, as we know, it's been very successful in lifting huge numbers of people out of poverty, making a, a very large middle class in China. And I think this has um, massively increased demand for not just pangolins, but also tigers, you know, rhinoceros horn, elephant horn. And, uh, you know, this, this is a very, very big problem. And, you know, it just struck me because I, I listened to your show a lot. Um, and, uh, you know, you were you know, rightly praising the Chinese authorities for being able to build, uh, you know, pop-up hospitals in a few days. It, it really is incredible how they can do that. But, um, you know, it's arguable that if, they, if the Chinese authorities had more of a hold over, um, you know, uh, stopping these restrict, uh, you know, sale of restricted animals in markets, uh, maybe they wouldn't get these diseases popping up in the first place. So, Well, it's, it's very interesting. I can't argue with you, Matthew, because it's beyond I, my ken. Uh, but I'm sure there are people uh, out there listening that will have a point of view on it. It was very cogently expressed in any case. Okay. Thank you for that call. Let's go to Joshua in London on the same subject of China. Go ahead. Are you right, George? How yes, you doing? nice to hear from you, Joshua. Go ahead, please. Yeah, um, basically, I was watching a very repugnant video from an alt-right activist who lives in my borough. I reluctantly admit it, but he does. And you might be aware of him. Uh, well, I can name him because he has an online presence. His name is Paul Watson. And he was, uh, you know, uh, denouncing the virus as simply China's fault. But and I don't say this with any kind of enthusiasm, okay, but he did say that because they, it stems from bats and because in certain Chinese cuisines they do eat live, well, almost live bats, do you think that it's arguable that the Chinese should uh, practice safer, uh, you know, uh, procedures when it comes to food, you know, contamination? Mm. Because <coughs> well, be I fair, would, Joshua, I, I myself would never eat a bat. And Tom McGregor, who's lived in China and is married to a Chinese woman, has never seen or heard of anyone eating a bat. Uh, 
but I do think it is a trifle orientalist of us who eat a vast array of animals to be uh, like uh, uh, maiden ants uh, screeching at the idea of other animals that we don't eat but that the Chinese might. Um, um, I, I, I depart from the premise that nobody eats bats. I can think of nothing more ugly, but there are many people, including in our own country, that are horrified at my lamb sausages. Uh, think it uh, terribly cruel and environmentally uh, utterly destructive. Do you see where I'm going, Joshua? Of course. No, I do see that, George. I'm just saying that with certain species that we don't, we haven't sort of, um, you know, uh, cultivated. Therefore, we're not as aware of the risks about mm. cross-contamination. Do you mm. see what I mean? Yeah, I do. It but then I unwise. also remember the mad cow. Uh, uh, you know, we cultivated cows. We eat them in oh, abundance, and they I get foot and mouth. The they get mad cow, and so on. Uh, it's uh, it's a vexed issue, Joshua. Oh no, no, I know it's contentious. I mean, mm. I referenced in a response to his video on YouTube. I referenced mad cow disease, and the symptom, you know, like that, that is actually more fatal if it turns into Jacob's disease for humans. Mm. If you ingest the, the the meat of an infected cow, you know, it's actually a lot worse than the coronavirus. But well, at least the coronavirus uh, kills you. The mad cow disease, you ramble about the streets in a state of complete delirium. Joshua, thanks. A wonderful call. Abu is in London. Let's hear from him. Go ahead, Abu. Where's up, George? How are you? Very well, thank you very much. Nice to hear from you. What would you like to say? You talk about the deportation of our people by the British government, you know? Is this this latest raft of uh, Windrush-type deportations I've seen reference to? Educate us, tell us. Well, it's all about the government talking about them deportating um, criminals, you know? Yeah. Are the, are the people, the 50 people involved, are they, are they all convicted criminals? No, no, they are not, you know. You have, you have people just went in, go to sign on, and then they snatch them from there to, to, the, to the center. And at the center, they, they, it's like they jam, they jam the website. You know, they can't, they can't make contact to their family, their lawyers, and all of these things. And what's the... I, I've been away for a week, so I'm not across this story in any detail. What is the government's rationale for these deportations? Well, they never have any rationale, you know. They just really play games. They've been playing games with us here, you understand, you know? For, for a people, for a set of people that come here and put the great back into Britain here. It's a shame. It's a goddamn shame, you understand, you know? I think we'll need to get more uh, details uh, on it. If you, if you don't know what the uh, case is, uh, we'll need to, someone through the glass can get me uh, what it is that they're saying. But it doesn't look good, Abu, uh, certainly at first glance. I need to uh, study it more, but thanks uh, for the call. Andrew Jordan says, when the EU collapses, Ireland will be hit hard. It would be in its best interest to join in with the UK. Been there, done that, Andrew. Dutchie says, a historic moment for Sinn Féin, the biggest political party in Ireland, and on a left United Ireland ticket. A lot of work to sell it to Northern Unionists and the West Brits in the South, but it is inevitable now with all the great work 
Brexit has done fragmenting the UK. And Tom Gilmore says plenty of moderate unionists have no major issues with the United Ireland. It's all about business. The average industrial wage in the north of Ireland is 21,000. In the Republic of Ireland, it's 35,000. We are no longer ruled by the church. The gun is gone, and Ireland is a better open place for all. And Michelangelo says, couldn't be happier about Ireland. The stain left by Varadkar will never dull. And David says, David O'Dreit says, Sinn Féin, the party that voted against the EU on no less than 25 occasions. Then the moment the Brexit vote was in, they suddenly became pro-EU. You couldn't make this stuff up. It can't be that long before they change their minds about reunifying Ireland. And Woody Woodpecker says, liking the lineup tonight, George, and the monologue. But I think he went on to say, I hope this has not been censored, because I saw this in, in real time. He went on to say he doesn't like the graphics. And these people who, who designed the graphics have suppressed that. Uh, the Midnight Owl says, hopefully United will, uh, Ireland will unite sooner than 10 years. Let's hear from Chris in Milton Keynes on the coronavirus. Chris, go on. Good to be speaking with you. Um, I was just thinking, there's been all these kinds of diseases been around since, like, the history of humanity, like Ebola, the plague, of course, the yeah. stars, Spanish flu and killed more people than the First yeah, World but War. But that broke out in 1919. It's, uh, it's not science fiction, it's science fact. They've shipped them all up to Milton Keynes. They quarantined them. They landed for some reason. They've landed... Are Milton you Keynes. saying that there are Chinese people <laughs> uh, being quarantined in Milton Keynes? Yes, they got shipped up with a police escort uh, in a coach. Wow. And, uh, it kind of makes you worry because if someone in that coach has a coronavirus, if you cram them all in a coach, to coach don't they all get the coronavirus? Well, uh, I, I did know they sent people to Wirral, uh, near Liverpool. I didn't know about the Milton uh, Keynes. Where are they being held in Milton Keynes? Um, some kind of health centre. I don't know if they've evacuated an existing health centre and put them in there or made mm. a new health centre. But mm. they definitely came up, I heard, of like coaches with a police escort. And, uh, so sorry, so sorry for those guys. I mean, like I say, surely if one... How can you quarantine a virus by cramming people into a coach where the air filters? Well, you can limit it, of course, to the people that are in the coach, uh, and that's pretty hard luck if uh, you're one of those in the coach. But uh, if, if you just let them uh, walk around and you don't quarantine them, then the multiplying of the virus would seem, obviously, to be much more likely. On a much more upwards and positive front, how cool is uh, Greta Thunberg? I'm not a big fan of Greta Thunberg, Chris. Tell me why you are. Because she is enlightening the planet to be more responsible and stop it from burning. Mm. How can you possibly disagree with what she says, my friend? Uh, well, first of all, she's not qualified. Uh, she's a schoolgirl. 
so I'd rather take my advice from people who are qualified. Secondly, uh, I'm not a big fan of the apocalyptic preaching, uh, neither religious nor uh, scientific or pseudo-scientific. Uh, if I hear again that the world will be destroyed in five years, 10 years, 15 years, uh, a year and a half, next week, uh, uh, that just leaves me cold. That's my problem with it, Chris, because uh, I'm absolutely certain that it isn't true, that the world has been through many things and it is not going to end in 18 months, five years, 10 or 15 years. She's just turned 17 and she's become one of the world's most powerful people within the space of yeah, two because, years. And that, that in itself raises questions. Uh, how? Why has she? She's, she's, she's a schoolgirl that doesn't go to school. Uh, she she right things. Well, she, she, she knows that the planet is under immense pressure and someone has to do something about oh, yeah. it. And she's picked, the, picked up the bull by the horns, just like you did in Parliament, and told them not to go to war with Iraq. She stood up before all the world, the world leaders and told them... I'm grateful to you for <laughs> that. Uh, but but, but I, was, I was qualified to do that uh, because I was a six times elected member of parliament, because I was an expert on the Arab world, the Middle East, and on Iraq, because I was the only person in British politics going back and forward to Iraq under sanctions. I knew what I was talking about. I'm not sure I'd have been listened to quite so carefully if I'd been a 16-year-old schoolboy uh, doing it. But thanks uh, very much for the Call Mitch says, would Northern Ireland rejoin the EU? Uh, well, of course, Northern Ireland will not rejoin the EU as long as it remains a part of the United Kingdom. If Ireland were to uh, reunite, then all parts of Ireland would be in the EU. Andy Omega says Ireland will reunite and quit both the EU and the UK in less than 10 years. Fragmentation and self-determination is the game to play in Europe going forward. And Cardon says, I recently asked my 30-something nephews and nieces about this. They all work and have young families. Basically, the response was, lovely idea, but we don't want to pay for Northern Ireland. I do hear that uh, from time to time uh, when I'm in the Irish Republic, and it always sounds like hearing Our Lady swear, if you know what I mean. But I do hear it. Charlene in West Belfast says, in your opinion, who will be Taoiseach this time next week? And ideally, who do you think Sinn Féin will be in coalition with? Great show, as always. I'm not sure, Charlene. I think uh, that, uh, that the Sinn Féin president has uh, a real shout uh, to uh, be considered first uh, to put together uh, a coalition to govern. I'm not sure how stable it would be. I don't know, of course, the final outcome yet, but Varadkar has clearly lost the election. It would be absurd for him to continue. Uh, the verdict on Fianna Foyle propping up the Varadkar government is equally damning, and they would be extremely foolish in Fianna Foyle to try and recreate uh, a Varadkar a coalition a government. So I actually think that Sinn Féin are in pole position. But as uh, Fine Gael and Fianna Foyle are still ruling out a coalition, though 
in historical terms, a Sinn Féin Fianna Foyle coalition government uh, would have uh, a certain logic. Now that Sinn Féin has changed its spots in so many ways, uh, that coalition fit doesn't look nearly as obvious as it once did, and I mean 10 or even 15 years ago, uh, obviously once did. So it seems likely that independents, socialists, Greens, if they will, and Sinn Féin will form a government. And we'll have a Sinn Féin Prime Minister Taoiseach in Ireland. That's how it looks to me, yeah, but it's early days. There's a lot of counting in Irish elections. Okay, my poll is still running. Following Sinn Féin's success, will there be a united Ireland in A, 10 years? That's 54%, down one. B, 20 years, 15%, up one. C, never, 31%, no change. If you want to vote on that, go on to my Twitter feed, at George Galloway, and cast your uh, vote. Let's take a quick break, and then we'll go on to That Was The Week. That was Radio Sputnik. Tune in every Wednesday to Loud and Clear with Brian Becker and John Kiriakou for a regular segment called Beyond Nuclear, where Brian and John discuss nuclear issues, including weapons, energy, waste, and the future of nuclear technology in the United States with Kevin Camps, the radioactive waste watchdog at the organization Beyond Nuclear. Listen on Wednesdays right here on Radio Sputnik. Want to talk? Get in touch with us at radio at sputniknews.com. That was the week that was. This is where I take a look back at seven days in history which shaped or rocked our world. It was 70 years ago this day that the United States Senator Joseph McCarthy launched his anti-red crusade, accusing more than 200 staff in the U.S. State Department of being members of the Communist Party. He made the startling allegation in a public speech in West Virginia, saying the State Department was infested with communists and brandished a sheet of paper which purportedly contained the traitors' names. Two days later, he wrote to President Harry Truman saying he had a list of 57 communists. On February the 20th, he delivered a six-hour speech to Congress in which he referred to 81 individuals, not naming them, but making it clear who they were, who he said were members of the Communist Party or loyal to it. Although his claims were unsubstantiated, many lost their jobs. He focused particularly on Hollywood, apt on this Oscar night, and in a series of Senate show trials, which led to many actors, writers, directors, and producers being blacklisted. His witch hunt did have popular support. At its height, 25 states passed laws outlawing communist organizations. But when he tried to take on the army in a series of televised cross-examinations, public opinion finally turned. He died a bitter alcoholic in 1957. It's uh, particularly apt to remember that, not just on Oscar night, but in the week uh, that the late and great Kurt Douglas finally passed away at the age of 103. He was Spartacus, and in more ways than one. He knew that the studio 
had invested so much money in him and so much money in the movie Spartacus that he was now in a position to break the blacklist. The man that had written the screenplay for this epic and magnificent movie starring Kirk Douglas and a cast of thousands had had to do so under a false assumed name because he was banned under the blacklist. And so Kirk Douglas said, I'm no longer complying with this blacklist unless you put Trumbo's name as the screenwriter and give him his due regard and reward and recognition, I'm walking off this movie and you can whistle for your Spartacus. You can start the film all over again without me in it. That's the kind of hero that Kirk Douglas was. That's why I say he was Spartacus. He destroyed the blacklist. I had a friend actually whose husband uh, was one of those blacklisted and driven out of the United States by the witch hunt. She had to move first to Britain, didn't like the weather, moved to the south of France. She discovered that our next door neighbor cutting his hedge was Pablo Picasso. Naturally, they became firm friends and exiled Hollywood director and his wife next to the famously communist Picasso. Picasso gave her as a gift one of his paintings. She later sold it for $25 million. George, I'd like to nominate for the Hall of Fame the genius Alan Turing, who quite possibly was responsible for saving more allied lives during World War II than any other single individual. Eric, that's a very good nomination. Could someone write that down through there behind the glass? Let's say that Alan Turing is uh, one of the nominees. We'll consider next week's nominees when we've read everyone's nominations. George, I too had never heard of Put Buttig Pete, I can't even say his name, Put Buttigieg, Pete Buttigieg, before the Iowa caucuses, had it not been for the fact that I was doing the Sun crossword, really, a couple of weeks ago. The Sun has a crossword? Is it, what is it, in pictures? And the clue was, what is the forename of the US politician with his surname? I thought it was someone from history. I only solved it because Pete only has four letters. Turned out he's someone who was about to become prominent. Odd how the compiler had the idea to include him rather than Bernie or Biden or someone else we'd heard of. Very odd. My tinfoil hat is not as fancy as your trilby though, George. That's from Tony Getliff. Uh, there's uh, still uh, plenty of time to get involved in the uh, poll and you can call me, of course, I'm ready to argue the toss uh, with any of you, but I do have so many other points to make about on this day. Let me continue. On this day in 1972, the UK government declared a state of emergency over the national strike by Britain's miners. It was the first time since 1926 that British miners had been on official strike. The strike lasted seven weeks and ended after miners agreed to a pay offer on February the 19th. The successful strike indirectly brought down 
Edward Heath's Conservative government, but it proved a bitter lesson to an aspiring leader called Margaret Thatcher, who determined to break the miners, and in 1985 she did. Don't tell the wife, but I'm old enough to have been active in that strike in 1972. I am uh, a lifelong uh, honorary member of the National Union of Mine Workers, South Wales area, Mardi Lodge. If you're reading my novel, Queensway at the moment, you'll know that that area and that lodge plays a prominent role in the story. If you haven't bought my novel yet, you can do so at georgegalloway.com. You'll like it. Everyone who's read it so far has done. Uh, but I was involved as an activist at 18 in that strike in 1972, even though it, only, uh, it was only comprised of my going around turning lights on when other people had turned them off in public buildings. Um, it's no secret that I support Manchester United. It was in this week on February 6th, 1958, that one of the greatest tragedies in football occurred. A plane carrying the team which had just defeated Red Star Belgrade in the European Cup stopped to refuel in Munich. In heavy snow, it crashed, taking off, killing seven players and 14 others. Another player, the peerless Duncan Edwards, died in hospital two weeks later. It was 30 years ago on February 11th that Nelson Mandela walked free from prison after 27 years. He spent most of his sentence on Robben Island off Cape Town doing hard labor. It's one of the great honors of my life that I came to know him, to call him a friend, and to have struggled in my way as best I could in his cause. Uh, Mandela's release was televised worldwide and in South Africa people danced in the streets across the country and thousands clamored to see him at a rally in Cape Town. In the first multiracial elections in the country's history, he was elected president and the African National Council, uh, Congress, sorry, gained 252 of the 400 seats in the National Assembly and apartheid was officially dead in South Africa at least. Mandela died in 2001, aged 83. On a lighter note, on this day in 1964, the Beatles first appeared on the Ed Sullivan Show in the United States, drawing an audience, staggering, of over 73 million viewers. It was the first step in the conquering of America and the world. What a phenomenon they were, they were. Now, comments, I've got so many of them, I'm in danger of uh, sinking under it. Paul says, I was a bit unsure about the pink color palette in the new look, Moats ident, but I have to say it's growing on me now. P.S. Is there any chance that you could unblock me on Twitter? <laughs> Not quite sure why I was blocked in the first place, but I miss reading your twits, tweets. I am socialist booksy, and I started the trending Bring Back Galloway Twitter storm a couple of years ago. Thanks a lot, Paul. Consider it done, Paul. I've no idea either why you were blocked. Andy says, all the best to you. Would it not be a better response following a successful unification vote in the north of Ireland to incorporate Northern Ireland as an autonomous region of the Republic and the continuation of British citizenship for those that want it? This may go some way to preventing a violent response uh, on England mainland from Ulster loyalists. If relations with Russia improve, this will hopefully lead to an independent British foreign policy. 
sorely needed in the world of international relations today. Now that we're independent, it's time for us to look for new opportunities with old allies and new friends. Thanks, uh, Andy, for those latter points. On the first part of your uh, message, I, I actually uh, agree with you that much more has to be done to make Irish reunification more palatable to people that have a lifelong, maybe several generations long, antipathy towards it. Uh, for that reason, counterintuitively, you may say, I support Boris Johnson's idea of building a bridge between Scotland and the north of Ireland. I think that would be, uh, first of all, very good for business, good for engineering, building work uh, and the economy. Um, uh, but I also think it would be uh, reassuring uh, to unionists in the north of Ireland uh, that they were not uh, being, as it were, cut adrift uh, by Britain acquiescing to the reunification of Ireland. I also agree with you. Why can't, why would not it be possible for people to be joint British and Irish citizens? I'm not talking about sovereignty of the land. That must be Ireland. But there's no reason at all why if you are an Irish citizen in the north of Ireland, you may still be allowed to hold British citizenship. Why not? There are plenty of uh, people in the north of Ireland now that are in exactly that position because they've applied for Irish passports. I would do so myself if I uh, lived there. Uh, so I do think there are many ways in which uh, it is possible. Maybe they're happening uh, under the uh, radar. Maybe they're happening uh, already. But if they aren't, they ought to. Now, breaking news. Here's the latest on Storm Chiara. Is that how you pronounce that? Chiara. A deep Atlantic low-pressure system which is battering Britain. Winds of 97 miles an hour have been recorded at the Needles on the Isle of Wight. And 93 miles per hour at Aberdaran in Wales. 200 flood warnings remain in place as an amber weather warning is in force for much of England and Wales. And we're just hearing that a major incident has been declared by Lancashire Fire Service. It's being reported that 530,000 homes are without power. Many airlines have cancelled flights at most airports up and down Britain due to the strong winds, just as well we got in yesterday, Mrs., or we wouldn't be here at the show tonight. And many airlines have cancelled flights uh, and uh, the Manchester City West Ham game this afternoon was postponed. That's the best result West Ham have had this season and many other sporting events too. In Cumbria, six inches of rain has fallen in 24 hours. Snow is forecast for tomorrow and Tuesday in Scotland. If you're heading out on the roads, Highways England is warning of treacherous driving conditions in all of the main motorways. How's my poll coming along? Any update uh, on it? Because you can vote up to nine o'clock on this. Following Sinn Féin's success, will there be a united Ireland? In A, 10 years, B, 20 years, C, never. Let's hear from Paul in Glasgow. Go ahead, Paul. Good evening from Glasgow, George. All the best here. Thank you, sir. What would you like to talk about? Well, you challenged me on air once you read my email out. Barbara you are Asher a gentleman. You are a gentleman uh, and a warrior. I would never shirk away from a challenge from a man like yourself. I salute, so, I, I salute your indefatigability in pressing the and case. That means, 
That means a lot to me. That really does come from a man like yourself. Thanks. So now make, the... make your case. Make your case. Margaret Thatcher, the late great Baroness Margaret Thatcher, she should deserve a place in your Hall of Fame. She has done more to shape British politics than anyone in our history. Yeah. Who would have thought? Well, I mean, Ad thought... Adolf Hitler did a bit to shape British politics. Doesn't mean we would put him in the Hall of Fame. She destroyed no. more. She destroyed more of Britain's manufacturing capacity than the Luftwaffe did. Well, some people would say that it deserved to be consigned to the rubbish bin with the loss-making... No, have you worked in it, Paul? No, have you worked in no, it? No, no, no. But the trade unions, George, were holding this country to ransom with the, with the industry that was not making money. We couldn't keep subsidising it and they're going on strike for having the wrong type of loo roll in the WCs. I've never known such a strike, Paul, but... What you're talking Go. is accounts rather than economics. Because we didn't save any money by destroying these industries, throwing millions onto the dole. As a matter of fact, we had to keep paying them for not working. And the economies well, of those post-industrial areas, one of which you're calling from now, were completely devastated. So we didn't save any money in reality, but it made the accounts look different, that's all. No, okay, yeah, that's a relevant point, I suppose. But tell me this, what politician has galvanised people to stand up against the system more than Margaret Thatcher? She's a woman who's put the fire in your belly. Not that you needed more food in there. No, but she's you're right, she you, did, yeah, she did. Yeah, she's done more to make, make people like yourself stand up for the common working people. She has galvanised the case for Scottish independence more than anyone in this country. Now I realise it's a wind-up. Let me tell you this, Paul. Yeah. I was at Hampden Park for the Scottish Cup final. I think it was 1989. Between right. Celtic and the Dundee Labour Party, otherwise known as Dundee United. And the entire stadium, <laughs> the entire stadium held up red cards. Thatcher was up there in the stand for some bizarre reason. <laughs> Somebody thought it was a good idea for her to present Shit. the Scottish Cup. And the whole crowd was singing, Margaret Thatcher, stick your poll tax up your Archie. And she, well, turned, yes. she turned to Ian Lang, the Scottish secretary, and said, what is that they're singing, Ian? And he said, I think they're singing. Margaret Thatcher, give the poll tax a chance. <laughs> Great story, George. But I mean, there you go. She, she, she really invokes a lot of emotion in today's politics and indeed, indeed society in general. But, I mean, there's a woman who won three general elections. So did Tony Blair. Win. So did Tony Blair. Yes, yes. yes. But, you you know, want him in the Hall of Fame next? No, I do not. He's a Hall of Shame, him, for taking us into an illegal war. <laughs> but Margaret Thatcher... She took us into plenty of illegal wars. She killed the hunger strikers in Ireland. She, she shot the, uh, the Belgrano in the back when it was sailing away from the Falkland Islands. She left our soldiers' guts on Goose Green just so she could get re-elected in the election, well, the khaki election. Uh, after the Falklands War. Well, in relation to that Falklands War, yes, true, it did bring her back from uh, a bit of um, trouble, but it did show that the UK would not tolerate our 
sovereign territories being invaded by foreign powers. She stood up for us. She, she said, not taking any of your nonsense. And by the way, during that conflict, while she was running the country uh, and fighting that war, uh, she managed to write a letter to every single family of a soldier, sailor, or airman who lost their life well, you during don't, that conflict. She never wrote the letter. Some factotum wrote the letter. George, and what about, no, our sovereign, what about our sovereign territory of Grenada that our pal Ronald Reagan was allowed to invade? That was actually ours. Good one. Uh, good one. But I must pull you up, George. She did write every single letter. She sat up all night, some nights, to write to the families of these. All right. Well, if, if, uh, if, if I'm wrong, you know? if I'm wrong about yeah. that, I, I withdraw it. However, yeah. Yeah. it would be scant consolation to me if my son Indeed. was in the cold earth because she mm -hmm. sent him to war. That she uh -huh. wrote me a letter overnight. Paul, it's been a pleasure disagreeing with you. You're a gentleman and a warrior. Thanks for calling me. Let's go to the news with Emily Thorne. Curious about our curriculum? Have something to say? Then call us now to join the debate on the mother of all talk shows with George Galloway. Tune in every Tuesday to Loud and Clear for a regular segment called False Profits, a weekly look at Wall Street and corporate capitalism, where we talk about the big economic issues of the week from the point of view of working people, the poor, and the U.S. position in the global economy. Join us this Tuesday and every Tuesday with financial policy analyst Daniel Sankey right here on Radio Sputnik. It's time to double down with Max and Stacy. Yeah, double down. We're talking markets, finance, business, economics, ka-ching, bling, just about everything money-related on Sputnik. It's called Double Down. We're asking, are dead cats bouncing or have fundamentals changed? That's this week on Double Down. Radio Sputnik. We speak your language. Find us at SputnikNews.com. Radio Sputnik News. Counting is continuing in the Irish general election as a respected exit poll has put the three main political parties tied in first preference votes. Ballot boxes from across the 39 constituencies were opened at 9 o'clock this morning. Indications from the poll suggest that there is little difference in percentage terms between Fine Gael, Sinn Féin and Fianna Foyle. However, early tallies at count centres suggest a Sinn Féin surge forward. Polling in the election closed at 10 p.m. last night. It appears unlikely that any party will have a clear majority, so another coalition government is probable, although the composition is still unclear. Both Fine Gael and Fianna Foyle say they would not enter coalition with Sinn Féin. Next, thousands of people stuck on a cruise ship in Hong Kong for four days are being allowed to disembark after tests for coronavirus have come back negative. Some 3,600 passengers and crew on the World Dream ship were quarantined amid fears some staff could have contracted the virus on a previous voyage. Another cruise ship where dozens of cases have been confirmed remains in quarantine off Japan. The outbreak has killed 813 people, all but two in mainland China. The coronavirus has now killed more people than the SARS epidemic in 2003.
In the Chinese province of Hubei alone, the epicenter of the coronavirus outbreak, the death toll is now put at 780 by regional health officials. More than 34,800 people have been infected worldwide, the vast majority in China. Next, residents of the Thai city of Nakhon Ratchasima have been reliving their ordeal after a gunman roamed around a shopping center on a shooting spree that killed 29 people. Some barricaded themselves in toilets or hid under tables, frantically searching for information on mobiles. Jakrafan Thertama began his rampage on Saturday afternoon, but it ended 16 hours later with his death. A vigil for victims has been held with monks chanting prayers. The 32-year-old soldier who had posted images during his attack on social media appeared to have been motivated by a land dispute. Another 57 people were injured in the incident. He began his attack at around 3.30 local time on Saturday at a military camp, but it was his arrival at Terminal 21 shopping complex that led to an indiscriminate shooting spree. Many of the victims were killed as he arrived, some in their cars, others outside the complex. Graphic images appeared on social media. And severe gales and heavy rain are sweeping across the UK as travellers face disruption from Storm Sierra. There is widespread flooding and a severe weather warning in place in North Yorkshire, meaning a danger to life. Thousands of people are without electricity and sporting fixtures have been cancelled due to the deteriorating conditions. Airlines have cancelled dozens of flights, while several rail firms have urged passengers not to travel. The main lines between England and Scotland are suspended. Ferry passengers also face delays and cancellations, while drivers have been warned to take extra care. Large parts of the UK are covered by an amber warning for very strong winds, with gusts reaching more than 90 miles per hour in some places. Sporting events which have been called off because of adverse weather include Manchester City's Premier League game against West Ham. However, the exceptionally strong winds ensured that a British Airways flight became the fastest subsonic New York to London journey ever. The Boeing 747 reached speeds of 825 miles per hour as it rode the jet stream accelerated by Storm Sierra. The four-hour and 56-minute flight arrived at Heathrow Airport 80 minutes ahead of schedule this morning. And finally, one of the world's best-known double acts, Tom and Jerry, turn 80 this week. The cartoon duo was dreamt up out of desperation. MGM's animation department, where creators Bill Hanna and Joe Barbera worked, had struggled to emulate the success of other studios who had hit characters like Porky Pig and Mickey Mouse. While out of boredom, the animators, both aged under 30, began thinking up their own ideas. Barbera said he loved the simple concept of a cat and mouse cartoon with conflict and chase, even though it had been done countless times before. Puss Gets the Boot was the first they released in 1940. The debut was a hit and won the studio an Oscar nomination for Best Animated Short. Despite their work, the animators were not credited. The Oscars, of course, takes place in Los Angeles tonight, with the British film 1917 hotly tipped in several categories, while the Best Actor Oscar is likely to go to Joaquin Phoenix. Well, that's all for Sputnik News. I'm Emily Horn. listening to Radio Sputnik. Sputnik, telling the untold. Welcome to the Open University of the Airwaves with George Galloway, only on Sputnik Radio.
George, I heard a rumor that Pete Buttigieg has pronounced himself Democratic nominee and that his running mate will be Juan Guaido with President Trump's full backing, of course. That's uh, from Paul. Uh, here's the second poll. Which film should win Best Picture at the Oscars tonight? A, 1917, B, Parasite, C, Joker. You can vote now on my Twitter feed. But the big news is, and it's been all night, and it's going to get even bigger, I think, over the next uh, day or two, and that is the incredible result in the Irish Republic, where all three parties are at best, at best, equal, but where Sinn Féin might be outperforming the exit poll and maybe robbed only of an even bigger victory by the fact they didn't put up uh, a full slate of candidates. Now, uh, my old friend and yours, Kevin Marr, uh, a former Labour advisor, the author of the best book on the inevitability of a united Ireland, is back on the show to talk us through it. Kevin, welcome. Thank you very much indeed for evening, uh, joining us. Uh, it's uh, a red letter day or a green uh, letter day. Uh, let's analyze it uh, first and foremost. What's your latest information on what the likely makeup of the Doyle will be when the dust has settled? Well, as you say, George, it's, it's, a, it's a fiendishly complicated uh, system that they've got in the Irish Republic. Multi-member constituencies, a uh, lot of preferential voting, um, single transferable vote. So there's a lot of counting takes place and then recounting and recounting. At the moment, what we've got is about, I think there's about uh, 33, 34 seats that have been uh, declared. Of those, Sinn Féin has got 23 of them. So, tw so at this early stage of the count, 2016 general election. So there is, it's an important threshold for Sinn Féin. It's topped the popular vote in terms of first preferences. So in a sense, it's won the election in that respect. But as you say, this, it's a very packed field with um, Fianna Foyle and Fianna, Fianna Gael, um, close behind. What we've, what we've seen effectively in the last 24 hours is the emergence of three-party politics in the Irish Republic. The two other parties, Fianna Foyle and Fine Gael, have basically run Ireland for the last 100 years since partition, since the creation of the Irish Free State and later the Irish Republic. So it's, it's an earthquake in terms of um, a new entrant, Sinn Féin. It's been a marginal force in, in Irish politics in the South uh, traditionally. Until 1986, of course, um, Sinn Féin and the Republican movement didn't recognise uh, partition and, and, the, and then the second sort of state, if you like, in the, the, the Irish southern state. So they didn't field candidates. So they've made up a lot of ground in recent years. And this is, I think, tonight, you know, a, a really big seminal moment in Irish politics. I don't think anything's ever going to be the same again. And I think there's that sense that because of Sinn Féin's um, historical connections as the political wing of the IRA, there's been a sense with some Southern Irish voters that they're a breed apart, that they're not quite democratic enough for them. And the other two parties have very much played that even in this campaign, but it's, it really is now a, a case of diminishing returns. And, and you know, and Sinn Féin has had a, an extraordinary result. Now, uh, it's a very different Sinn Féin, uh, of course, to yeah. the Sinn Féin of 1986. Uh, its leaders have no connection at all uh, to the period of armed conflict. Uh, their leaders are increasingly women, uh, young women. 
Uh, and of course, they are talking about, in the case of this recent election, when they could avoid it, they were talking about everything else but partition. They were talking about the acute social and economic problems uh, faced by the mass of the people in, uh, in the Irish Republic. Um, Fianna Foil also is not the Fianna Foil that it used to be. I mean, I made the point earlier. If we'd been talking 30 years ago, the obvious coalition here would have been Fianna Foyle, which called itself the Republican Party, and Sinn Féin. But because Fianna Foyle are not what they were, and because Sinn Féin are not what they were, that lash-up looks to me exceedingly unlikely. Is that how it looks to you? Yeah, there's, there's, there's definitely um, some personality politics in this as well. Um, as you say, Sinn Féin, uh, the optics of Sinn Féin is, is, is fairly fascinating. It's a party that you know, has a lot of young people, a lot of young elected representatives. A lot of them are women. You know, a lot of them um, have no connection at all with with armed conflict, with the IRA, with the Troubles, because frankly, a lot of them were, were in short trousers in, in, in those days. So Sinn Féin has changed. It's moved on an awful lot in the last few years. Um, Mary Lou MacDonald, who is the, the Dublin politician, who's the president of Sinn Féin, took over from Gerry Adams about 18 months ago, is, is a pretty compelling figure. She's a, a, a charismatic, confident woman. Um, and, and in the world of Irish politics, which can sometimes be a little bit sexist as well in the doll, she's very good at slapping down some some of the boys, um, and I think there's, there's there's a certain degree of personality um, difference difference that, that that's that's creeping in here. Michal Martin, the former Irish Foreign Minister, who's the the leader of uh, Fianna Foil, and and Leo Varadkar, of course, the the current Taoiseach and leader of Fine Gael. Um, I don't think they particularly all three of them get on. Um, I think that's 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 fair to say. But I think what we're likely to see, given the numbers and given this is now three party politics, and, and effectively there's got to be a deal between two of those three parties to form a government, is we're likely to see, if I can borrow your phrase, George, the mother of all U-turns on behalf of either Fine Gael or Fianna Foyle, and they'll probably try and do a deal with Mary Lou Macdonald, perhaps on a supply and, 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 and confidence basis, but I don't think that will wash. I think what Sinn Féin are trying to do at the moment is, is to see where the numbers settle with some of the other smaller parties and to see if it's theoretically possible to stitch something together with the Greens on some of the other smaller left-wing parties. I don't think the numbers are there for them to be able to do that, but I think they want to be seen to try to do that first, rather than, if you like, jump into bed with one of the other two big parties who've taken quite a kicking, really, um, in, this, in, this, in this election. Fine Gael has, has suffered a fairly precipitous decline. Uh, Leo Varadkar's personal ratings um, and, and Fine Gael's ratings were doing pretty well six months ago. In some respects, the, the, the Irish public have, have, have been there supporting him in terms of the Brexit negotiations, where he seemed to have done very well in, in terms of in terms of the, the the outcome there. But it's not translated through into domestic political support because, as you say, although Ireland's got a very fast-growing economy and very low unemployment, there are big issues in terms of quality of life, in terms of health services, in terms of homelessness, and particularly the cost of housing, which have become massive issues in this campaign. Which Sinn Féin um, very cleverly has, has positioned itself as the centre-left. Uh, response to that, um, very much in the kind of guise of a European um, centre-left socialist party. Um, so, so, so you know, it's it's managed to it's managed to 
put the issue of Irish unity and, and partition, as you were saying, to one side and fight this election on domestic uh, domestic politics and domestic issues, where the, there is a real sense that the, the, the current Fine Gael government was very, very weak. Varadkar's the big loser. Uh, can, we, can we rule him out now? He can't continue as, as the Prime Minister, can he? I think it's very difficult, given, given where they are. And, and effectively, um, you know, Sinn Féin has topped the, the popular vote, but that doesn't necessarily translate through to winning the most seats because there's 160 members of the, of the Dáil and, and Sinn Féin has only st stood candidates, uh, 42 candidates. So it can, only, it can only get a third of the vote if it wins every seat that it's put forward, which it won't do. So, so you, you end up with this quite protracted situation where all three parties may get similar levels of seats. I think it will be very difficult for, for Leo Varadkar to emerge from this and carry on as Taoiseach. I think what may happen is that there is, um, there is a deal with Sinn Féin where Sinn Féin may take uh, the kind of lion's share of, of, of control of the government and perhaps Mary Lou Macdonald will become Taoiseach if the numbers were there. Um, but it may be perfectly likely that, that Leo Varadkar may find himself with a knife in his back, metaphorically, from his own side. Um, there are some fairly ambitious Fine Gael ministers who will, I think, have said to him that, look, you, you know, you've not run a good campaign, which, which he hasn't. Um, you've not got um, to grips with some of these quality of life issues that have been there for quite a while. Um, and, and actually, kind of, you've had your turn, Leo, and, and you were very keen to thrust the knife yourself into Enda Kenny, his predecessor. So there's not a lot of love lost there in, in the leading lights in, in Fine Gael. Well, uh, Kevin, explain, why, why did Sinn Féin put up so few candidates? I think, I think it was just the sense that um, the gains that they would make would be fairly modest. Um, six months ago in the European elections and the local elections uh, in, in the Irish Republic, Sinn Féin didn't do brilliantly well. So there was a sense, I think, a worry that if that was a similar result and, and they put forward a full slate of candidates, what would happen in multi-member constituencies is that, that that small number of votes may, may sort of divide between three candidates and actually it would be better to have one Sinn Féin candidate in some of, in some of these seats to maximise the Sinn Féin vote. Now, I mean, it looks, it looks today as, you know, a, a pretty disastrous tactic in that respect, ironically, given they've done so well in the, in the share of the vote. So that, that they can only top out, I think, you know, probably some people are saying they may get up to 40 seats tonight high 30s probably. Um, that's not enough to form a government on their own, so they would need to go and try and do a deal, as I, as I say, to start with, with some of the other smaller parties, the Greens and some of the left-wing parties that are elected to the Dáil as well. But the numbers aren't there for them to do that. Um, I think that really there's got to be a deal between um, two of the three big parties in Irish politics tonight, which is Sinn Féin, Fine Gael and Fianna Foyle. So Leo Varadkar may return. I don't think he's going to return as Taoiseach, though. Now, you are, as I said, famously the author of uh, the very best book on the inevitability of Irish unity, reunification. As we speak tonight, without knowing the full results, are we closer uh, to Irish unity than we were a week ago? I think definitely. Um, I think, I think the, 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 the rise in Sinn Féin's support, however that pans out, whether they enter government or whether they don't, I think the, 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 the debate in Irish politics changes, I think, quite, quite seriously um, tonight. I think the two big parties, as you alluded to at the start, uh, Michal Martin, the leader of Fianna Foyle, which is traditionally the Green Party of, of Irish politics, um, founded by Eamon de Valera, um, you know, the Republican Party as it styles itself. 
has done very, very little in recent years to bring about or bring about a discussion about Irish unity and, and actually has been quite hostile to it. Yeah. Um, I think there's, there's evidence that um, people within the party who are much greener than the current leadership under Micheál Martin um, would be very keen to, 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 if they have to do a deal, to do it with Sinn Féin. And it may be that Micheál Martin is another victim of tonight's result as well. I mean, he's, he's not played, a, he's not played um, a blinder in this campaign, as hasn't Varadka. They've both been outclassed by uh, Mary Lou MacDonald, who is just, you know, streets ahead of them in terms, in terms of being a, an effective communicator and campaigner. So, so we may see over the next 48 hours the leaders of both of those political parties um, falling by the wayside as people within those parties look to try and do a deal. Um, I don't think there's going to be much chance of the two main parties working together. They have been doing for the last three or four years anyway. Fina Foyle has backed up Leo Varadkar's Fine Gael, and, and that relationship hasn't worked desperately well. You've, you've basically got a cartel where the two of them have tried to keep Sinn Féin out of the equation for the last few years. And tonight, really, that, that, that policy, that cordon sanitaire that they've tried to instill in Dublin politics just isn't going to last. Sing hallelujah. Kevin, remind us where we can get your, your book. <laughs> it's certainly online and, and it's in all good bookshops and a few bad ones as well. <laughs> Thank you very much, Kevin Marr. Thanks, our, George. Uh, uh, Irish expert, been helping us for some years now on the mother of all talk shows. Let's take, uh, go straight to the lines. Uh, about Ireland, here's Brian in Ireland. Go ahead, Brian. Hi, George. How are you doing? Good. I'm a happy man tonight. Yes, yes. Uh, you're one among many. <laughs> I lit a candle in Moscow uh, for this outcome. Uh, I should have lit 32. You should have. Thanks, comrade. Kermagos. Thank you. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, Chico's the gentleman you had on there, he basically summed it all up. I think, you know, um, in terms of Sinn Féin weren't expecting this. They were. They did. Earlier, I was talking to some Sinn Féin activists uh, on Monday, and they expected highest they would get would be 32. And at that stage, they were realising they hadn't uh, put enough candidates into certain areas. There were several of their candidates, up to 22 of their candidates now, have gone through on the first preference vote. And had they, on a huge first preference vote, not just you know, getting over the quota, but getting over the quota by some several thousand. So they could have easily have brought in a second candidate. And in some places, like Desi Ellis could have brought in maybe another, a third candidate, you know. So they've kind of been unfortunate that they didn't put that in. But as your caller, as the gentleman you had on talking, says about six or seven months ago, this was unthinkable. It just didn't look like it was going to happen at all. What are the main reasons, Brian, why it has happened? Um, it has an awful lot to do with a total disenchantment with neoliberal politics. Um, politics of spin. People who live, who are spending most of their lives in their cars, have to pay huge amounts to put their children into care when they go to work, don't get to see their families. These people are, are unhappy. They've been told all the time that there's been, the economy's doing great, that there's full employment, that there's this, that there's that, but their lives aren't getting any better. So there's a, a real disenchantment among ordinary working people. And Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil don't talk to those people. Sinn Féin kind of are better at speaking to them. They uh, can talk to them in their own language. Whereas uh, the Fine Gael, the real private school 
um, team running through their front bench and they just don't get the problems that people on mortgages who have to travel three hours a day to work have. Uh, so they just, they're just really cut off. And what really summed it up, I think, was the Black and Tans uh, commemoration of the RIC. They just totally could not see how ridiculous that sounded to Irish people. And it really backfired. I think it wasn't the key thing in this, but it did have a, a part to play in invigorating. Well, yeah, I mean, it was a Marie Antoinette moment. Uh, why don't they yeah. eat cake? If they don't have bread, Absolutely. why don't they eat cake? Let's, have, let's build a monument uh, to the black and tans that slaughtered us. Uh, this was a kind of madness from Varadkar. Uh, why did Fina Foyle, the so-called Republican Party, go along with that? Well, in, in they quickly, I think, they, I think they would have gone along with it, but then they quickly realized what way it was going. Um, so a mayor, so the first mayor who was invited, who refused to go that to was this... Cork, uh, the mayor of Cork. Was it, it was the mayor of Clare started first. Okay. He was a Fianna Fáil mayor, and he refused. And then, of course, then the Cork mayor went, and then, of course, Sinn Féin obviously weren't going to go. And then it just took on a bit of a snowball effect, and it was nothing that uh, Charlie Flanagan or Leo Varadkar could say that could make it any better. No. And you have to remember these the people... like at the top of the top 20, though. Yes, it did. It did. <laughs> and I think that, you know, that kind of feels good... Uh, you know, the, 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 the kind of feel-good uh, feeling factor got into the Sinn Féin kind of base and uh, they started getting out and, and they started feeling something. And then there was an awful lot of other things. You know, there was a lot of homeless people. There was a gentleman, a uh, homeless gentleman in on the banks of uh, the canal up in Dublin. He was uh, picked up by a digger. Uh, they didn't realise he was in his tent. They badly hurt the man. Uh, stuff like that. The... the, the the trolleys of people in the hospitals. Um, uh, there was a vicious murder, a gangland murder in Drogheda in, uh, in County Loud. It was just a culmination and almost a perfect storm. So the kind of, and also they were pushing Brexit. They were saying, "Oh, Brexit, we, we've handled Brexit." But people in Ireland didn't really care. People were worried about. They're more worried about their health. They're more worried about the lack of housing, mortgages, and things like that. Well, that's the best call of the night, Brian. Don't be a stranger. That was fantastic, Brian. In Ireland, let's go to Austria and talk to Yvonne. On the same subject, I think. Yvonne, welcome. Hello, 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 George. How are you? Very nice um, to hear from you, Yvonne. Uh, I'm, I'm ringing up again, yeah, on the same subject, because I'm a Dubliner, actually, to refer. So um, my question was, because I just tuned in when you were speaking about the cost of Irish unity, and the thing was, like, I'm, I'm celebrating in my heart this beautiful this result for us today. I see it as an Irish victory and a step towards Irish unity. But my parents used to always say to me, Ireland couldn't afford Northern Ireland. And I tuned in to you and you were just saying the same thing. And so I would like you to kind of um, expand on this. Mm. What do people actually mean? 
my parents used to tell me that when I was a kid, and I'd sit there and say, oh, yeah, we couldn't afford it. And the other day I was talking to somebody, and they said, no, what are you talking about? There's another piece of land, actually. You know, when was that a bad thing that you got another piece of land? So could you actually expand on this? Because it was well, a, I, like... A, I, I can't, because uh, it, it's, first of all, absolutely nonsensical uh, to me. Yeah. And secondly, yeah. even if it was true, what difference would that make? Uh, it yeah. cost Germany, West Germany... Uh, to absorb East Germany, uh, but that, the, the, the reunification of their people was more important than pound shillings and pence or the German uh, equivalent. So, uh, I mean, it's like, uh, it's impossible for me to compute why that would even be an issue. Uh, but there are some things uh, in the north of Ireland that are better than in the Republic. Uh, the health service is free in the north of Ireland and it isn't free uh, in the Republic, uh, there are benefits that the uh, people in the North have that some people in the South don't have. On the other hand, wages are higher in the South than they are in the North. These kind of things will have to be ironed out and negotiated and a transition uh, agreed, no, no doubt. The Americans would help that transition, no doubt mm. the Europeans would. Uh, hallelujah, we now have the gate open. Uh, to yeah. the reunification of a small island that's been partitioned for a hundred years against yeah. its will and drowned in blood. Uh, let's, let's celebrate the fact exactly. that, the, that the party, which really meant it when it said it stood for Irish reunification, as opposed to others that pretended to, has apparently triumphed in this election. Yvonne. Thanks very much for the call. I, n I need to press on. Dave is in the southwest on EU defence budgets. Dave, go on. Uh, thanks for taking the call, George. Yeah, it's, um, it's ironic that you that you spoke previously about um, Margaret Thatcher. Yeah. And then uh, now Sinn Féin in Ireland and policy. There, um, there is a policy actually that Mag Margaret Thatcher and Sinn Féin currently uh, held together, which was they both opposed European or commitment to European defence union. So I don't know that, if Sinn Féin still do. Well, um, well, they did last time I looked. Um, if, okay. if it's not, I'll stand to be corrected. So, um, no, no, you're probably right. You're probably right. What, I, what, what I'm getting towards um, is obviously Margaret had, you know, what if it turned out to be incoherent defence policy because the, the, her saying no to Jack Delors in 1984 for his request for European Defence Union, um, but it was never articulated in the Tory party since. And I, 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 I firmly believe on from conversations with Lord James of Blackheath that there's a three-line whip in the party to keep quiet on it. Now, this is all important now because the deputy leader of the German CDU, Johann Wadfel, has openly called um, last week for the French nuclear deterrent to go into EU or NATO uh, command and control. And that concerns us because currently we have both bilateral and multilateral defence agreements with the French. And as I understand it, our Trident fleet and nuclear attack fleet jointly go out in a joint fashion with the French nuclear deterrent. So this concerns us directly in two ways, not just that physical way, because currently Boris's future uh, paperwork with Europe has membership and commitment to European Defence Union under consideration, and those are the words, under mm. consideration. So whilst we've had this silence of um, not 
articulating any of this during the Brexit debate, either by vote leave or remain, we now have the top end of nuclear capability and weaponising the EU on the agenda. And this is not the first time I've picked this up. It's picked, I've picked it up three times previously. One from a Rusi advisor, Nick Whitney, saying that the British and French nuclear deterrent could and should be extended to the EU unless Trump is impeached or has trained. And we also have uh, Max Hoffman being reported in Deutsche Welle um, some time ago saying that the French and British nuclear deterrent should form the European shield. So uh, my, my question really to George and probably the listeners, if they're able to interact, is does the prospect of an unelected EU president and council having nuclear weapons capability under their command and control of an unaccountable executive over the people of Europe worry you? Uh, well, it certainly scares the life out of me. It's an absolute monstrosity of an idea. And the point that you make about the veil of silence, uh, which has been dropped over this whole thing, is yes. equally uh, troubling. Uh, yes. It would be bad enough if we were being talked into uh, this European Defence Force uh, in, a, in an open way. Uh, but the idea that we might be being silently marched into it is, uh, is even more uh, unacceptable. I, I'm, I'm unlike you, I suspect, Dave. I'm against the European Defence uh, Union and I'm against NATO. Uh, I yep. want Britain to be an entirely independent country uh, with its yep. own uh, control over its own military and its yep. own foreign policy, which is the, which is the parent of military uh, policy. Defence is the daughter of uh, foreign policy. Uh, but the, if there's one thing worse than being in NATO, it would be being in a European defence force where absolutely unelected and unaccountable people have their finger on the trigger. Don't you agree? Yeah. I absolutely 100% agree, George. I mean, I don't, I'm, I, you know, I'm, NATO isn't perfect. It's not the conversation I'm having at the moment. I've campaigned heavily since the start of Brexit against European Defence Union, mm. despite there being some kind of silent three-line whip within the Tory party not to talk about it. Mm -hmm. But this concerns everybody in Britain through two other ways, because it's not for free. There will be a bill if it goes through. And currently, a lot of the wording that we're finding, the wordsmithing coming out of number 10, is that they're saying that our commitment is unwavering to European security, and this is a lovely little cover phrase because security as it stands at the moment in terms of the paperwork, the bureaucratic paperwork, covers defence. Now, and this is where it concerns everyone, if the Germans are talking about conscription from, 35, from uh, 16 to 35 both sexes on a pan-EU basis, and they want one single European defence contractor, one only, single point control of the industry. So as a data point where our, let's go back to the sort of nuclear, uh, nuclear fleet is concerned, currently the steel that's being procured by the MOD for the, uh, for the new astute holes that are, that, are, that are coming in up the Barron Furnace there, is being procured from France. It's not being procured from Britain. So uh, this, is one of the, this is one of the issues that we've got to start talking about. That the well, EU I'm, glad, you, I'm glad you've raised it, Dave. We don't have time to do it justice, uh, but I'll make sure it's on our agenda in, uh, in subsequent weeks. It's a very, well, very important call. It is very important. Please feel free to come back to me. I'd love I to will do. I will do. Make sure we've got Dave's telephone number, please. We need him on at more length. Uh, uh, now, the poll, which film should win Best Picture? A, 1917, 
35% of you, up 3. B, Parasite, 15%, down 3. C, The Joker, 50%, no chains. If you want to cast your vote on those three films, which one should win Best Picture? Uh, you can do so uh, on my Twitter feed. I need to take a quick break. Radio Sputnik. We speak your language. Find us at SputnikNews.com. Tune in every Thursday to Loud and Clear with Brian Becker for the regular segment called Veterans for Peace, where we focus on the contemporary issues of war and peace that affect veterans, their families, the country, and the world as a whole. Veterans for Peace President Jerry Condon joins the show every Thursday. Hear about this and more every Thursday right here on Radio Sputnik. We are above all the latest developments, and we don't take any sides. Radio Sputnik. Telling the untold. The mother of all talk shows. With George Galloway. The world is our classroom. And you're welcome to sit in and join the seminar. It's Oscar night. It's the week of the demise of Kirk Douglas, who did more than any other single individual to destroy the McCarthyite witch hunt and blacklist, which was a result of that witch hunt, and it's the day in which I unveil the very first member of the Mother of All Talk Shows Hall of Fame. And my nomination goes to one of the greatest men and one of the greatest Americans who ever lived. I refer to Paul Reloy Robson, who was not just a wonderful singer, not just a wonderful actor, but as a human being, was an absolute giant of a man, both figuratively and metaphorically. Paul Robeson was the ultimate victim of the blacklist. Paul Robeson actually got his passport taken away. Paul Robeson had to sing to the people down a telephone line in St. Pancras Hall in London, a packed hall, by the way, who knew he couldn't come because they'd taken his passport. But they turned out, bought tickets, and stood in an ovation in St. Pancras Town Hall to a rendition of Old Man River by Paul Robeson down a telephone line tied to a microphone like this. Paul Robeson's voice, his presence, his courage, in facing up to racism, facing up to all the prejudices and bigotries of American life in his era, standing up to the Cold War division of the world, standing in solidarity with the people of Russia, with the people of China, perhaps above all with the people of Spain, as an activist here in London, when a student at SOAS the School of Oriental and African Studies with the people of Republican Spain. He was born Paul Leroy Robson in April 1898 in Princeton, New Jersey. His father, William, a preacher, was actually born a slave. Robson was a bass baritone singer 
and stage and film actor who became famous both for his cultural accomplishments and for his political activism. He was educated at Rutgers College, where I've spoken actually. He was only the third black student to go there. And Columbia University. He was also a star athlete in his youth. He studied Swahili and linguistics at SOAS in London in 1934. His political activities began with his involvement with unemployed workers, with the miners here in Britain and with anti-imperialist students that he met here in Britain and worked with in support of the Republican cause in the Spanish Civil War and his lifelong opposition to fascism. In the United States, he also became active in the civil rights movement and other social justice campaigns. His sympathies for the Soviet Union and communism and his criticism of the United States government and its foreign policies caused him to be blacklisted during the McCarthy era. Paul Robeson worked briefly as a lawyer, but he renounced a career in law due to the widespread racism he found there and decided to concentrate on his musical career, appearing on Broadway, on the London stage, performing Shakespeare, and in a series of films. Paul Robeson believed that trade unionism was crucial to civil rights and it became a mainstay of his political beliefs and he became a proponent of the union activist. In 1956, Paul Robeson was called before McCarthy's House Un-American Activities Committee after he refused to sign an affidavit affirming that he was not a communist. In his testimony, he invoked the Fifth Amendment and refused to reveal his political affiliations. When asked why he had not remained in the Soviet Union because of his affinity with its political ideology, Robeson replied, because my father was a slave and my people died to build the United States and I am going to stay here and have a part of it just like you and no fascist minded people will drive me from it. At that hearing Robeson stated and I quote, whether I am or not a communist is irrelevant. The question is whether American citizens, regardless of their political beliefs or sympathies, may enjoy their constitutional rights. In 1957, still unable, because they'd taken his passport, to accept invitations to perform abroad, Robeson sang for audiences around the world, including in London, where 1,000 concert tickets sold out for his telephone concert at St. Pancras Town Hall. We have to learn the hard way that there is another way to sing, he said. An appeal to the US Supreme Court to reinstate his confiscated passport was rejected 
but over the telephone, Robeson was able to sing to audiences, including in London. On January 23rd, 1976, following complications from a stroke, Robeson died in Philadelphia at the age of 77. He lay in state in Harlem, and his funeral was held at his brother Ben's former parsonage. At the 2007 Edinburgh Fringe Festival, British-Nigerian actor Tayo Aluko, himself a baritone soloist, premiered his one-man show Call Mr. Robson, A Life with Songs, which has since toured various countries. And the film director Steve McQueen has also said he intends to film Paul Robson's story. I hope he does. I know he would do it justice. The one-man stage show is a must. The books on Paul Robeson will repay many times the time you spend reading it. But when this show is over, go on to YouTube and listen to the great Paul Robeson sing and speak. His voice, his words ring out across the ages, across the continents. He was one of the greatest of all human beings and one of the greatest Americans. And I'm proud to say he is now number one in our Hall of Fame. Let's take two Scottish calls. John in Glasgow. John, on you go, sir. George, I heard you cruelly baiting and encouraging the caller from London earlier who was touting another Scottish independence referendum when really um, the whole debate, certainly in Scotland, has moved beyond that issue to one of a crisis of fundamental good governance uh, that makes these people look like uh, Japanese soldiers still in the jungles of Borneo who haven't heard World War II is over. The referendum was five years ago, and I would say probably many people who even voted for independence last time round are now more concerned with uh, the crisis in governance that exists today. Yeah, I mean, but that's one of the reasons why I'm in favour of having the referendum. I want to end this endless never-endum mentality uh, where Scotland goes down the tubes while the SNP live high on the hog. Oh, how high! And well, yeah. I, I, I think we need to defeat the SNP. We need to defeat this uh, pernicious uh, preoccupation of theirs to break up this small country. Well, the, 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 whole, the whole issue, I think, uh, of another referendum, I mean, it, it's a bit like the people who wanted to have another uh, Brexit referendum. It really is uh, far, so far down people's priorities uh, here in Scotland, uh, from, from as far as I can see. Um, I mean, you have a government uh, and, a, and a party which, which nurtures and, uh, and promotes uh, vacuous non-entities uh, into senior positions running the country. You have a gentleman this week who was the Chancellor of Scotland resigning the night before his budget, who's also responsible for a project on a shipyard in the Clyde, the Clyde, which built ocean-going uh, liners. Uh, they can't even build a ferry to go across the Firth of Clyde. No, I'm well aware uh, of all of that, and it's good that you've reminded the audience uh, of it. However, uh, how do we measure whether the Scots want to have another referendum? Uh, we can measure it in the elections next May, 
uh, not this May coming, but the following May, so the elections to the Scottish Parliament in 21. That could be fought on that basis, will be presumably fought on that basis. That's one indicator. Opinion polls seem to suggest uh, that it's a close-run thing whether we should even have another referendum. But you're convinced the majority doesn't want one. I don't think people, uh, the majority of people, there are so many issues. Uh, everywhere you look, it's a catastrophe. Uh, we don't have to wait till May next year, George. Uh, we can have it in May this year if, if the desire is I want there. It. I want it in May this year. Right well, after the Alex Salmon trial, let's have the Indy Ref 2. Well, by rights, it's four years. Her mandate has expired. That be, it's a four-year mandate in these devolved assemblies. The mandate has expired. They say they can't get rid of these people who are now sitting on the back benches as independents because the law will make a law next week to, to allow recall of these people. But they won't do that. Very good. Uh, cogent points, John, as always. Let's go to Stephen in Glasgow, Hillhead, my first parliamentary constituency. Go on, Stephen. How you, how you, how you getting on, George? And when are you coming back to Owl Head? Because this country in Scotland badly needs somebody up I couldn't, there. I couldn't afford to live in Hillhead. But I'm well, coming, I've got, I've but I'm got coming back to Scotland. To, You've got a spare room. I've got a spare room, George, and you and your wife or your partner or anybody, you're more than welcome well, to come and stay with me. Yeah, that's very kind of you, but I've got six wings, uh, Stephen. I'll tell it's you hard, what, I've got a big garden shed. I've got a big garden shed, George. You can get in there with the wings. Okay. All right, go ahead, Stephen. <laughs> this poor guy, Derek Mackay, what has he actually done wrong? He's been treated like a common criminal up here. Because they used the word grooming. He wasn't he was flattened by some young fella due to due to sexuality and the country's up in the arms. Yeah, you go to Phil Schofield and the other side, the T V world, he's in T like a hero. And the way they're going, the Queen might end up knighting him. I just think the whole country if we've got a priority is all wrong. Yeah, but it's I, I, sad what the folk we've got. I mean, all yeah. he said was, "You've got a lovely haircut." Oh, I like, I like your aftershave. Does that mean if I say that to one of my pals that I'm gay or I'm grooming? You see what I'm coming for, Joe? I do, I, I do. Um, but there's a number of differences between Mackay and uh, Philip Schofield. Uh, Mackay was a government minister. In fact, the second minister in the country, the Chancellor of the Exchequer. And so there's an issue of power relationships. There's we're also... We haven't seen the Constitution, George. You've got to be straight and no heterosexual or homosexual or homophobic. Where does that say that you cannot have a partner in this ideal world we're in now, that you can't have a boyfriend or I you've got to have a girlfriend, you've got well, to be by a woman? Uh, does no, it say that, George? No, it doesn't say that and neither should no. it, neither should it nor, nor, nor will it. But, no, uh, but, but, but Stephen, let me develop my point. Yes, uh, cool. There were 265 messages from Scotland's Chancellor of the Exchequer to a 16-year-old boy. It follows uh, that some of those messages began, this grooming or flirtation began uh, before the boy had reached the age of consent, which is 16. There's the second issue uh, that Derek Mackay was, as a powerful politician, in a, po in, in a, a position, in a power uh, relationship to this schoolboy.
uh, who, when it began, was 50, uh, and that this was activity or behavior incompatible with holding high office. Uh, certainly the SNP have concluded that because uh, they've ditched them, suspended them, sacked them, uh, but it's uh, added to a sense. I mean, I've got to tell you, Stephen, every night is Burns night for the Scottish MPs of the SNP. Uh, they're in that bar in the House of Commons. Uh, they're at every reception. They're swallowing uh, rivers uh, of the best uh, alcohol. There's sing songs. There's affairs. There's marriage breakups. There's all kinds of high life in the SNP group at Westminster, as is well attested. It's all adding up to, and that's before Alec goes on trial uh, next month, it's all adding up to a sense, Stephen, that the SNP, that there's something rotten at the heart of the SNP, don't you think? I understand what you're saying, but see this country, the education, the transport, the taxis, the welfare, the no homeless in the street, the priceless flourishing. This country would make a bunch of island what his, what his sexuality was. Another thing is, this person did not complain to the police till the six years. So, he was in a... His mother so, did. Well, you want, okay, let's go to another one, Will, for the, the Hall of Shame, Will. Let's come into the Hall of Shame. We'll put the two of them in here together. We have a royal family from the top. The whole name, you know everyone is not a, a royal family. Everyone is converted in scandal. And even you're riding to, to, to Andy, that whole family is a disgrace to, the, to this British monarchy. And I think the Queen... Should get the whole lot of them, get them on a bus, and leave this country because there's families you get to Moss Side in Manchester and get a family out of there and put them into that, into, into that big house. Powerful, powerful, the gutter. powerful stuff, Stephen in Hillhead. Thanks for that. Richard is in Manchester on Thatcher. Go ahead, Richard. Hello, George. That just came in perfect. Mrs. Thatcher and the person you were speaking to before. I don't think you knew much about uh, the way that people suffered, uh, particularly in the coal fields and when she closed everything down, the shipyards and, and yeah. everything, and she used the police force uh, as an army to, to beat them up, and many of my family were on the front line there. My father was a coal miner, and he was... Uh, he was a ripper down the pit all his life, and, uh, you know, he was a great guy. He was about your size, George, uh, and uh, he had the, the heart of a lion. But uh, he actually actually uh, didn't get on very well with Margaret Thatcher, mm. as you can imagine. And if that guy was to go to Durham today, particularly near the Sedgefield, which was uh, Blair's constituency, you would find families who never spoke to each other ever, ever, ever again. Sons Although they've fathers. just elected a Tory MP, Richard. Pardon me? Yes, I know. That was, that was something uh, really good, because my wife came from up there. But uh, more to the point, George, you know, we talk about what is happening today. And it's very, very, very much, you know, we might have a modern way of life. But the politics are still the same. And I think uh, our new Prime Minister has got to start spreading the wealth around with, these, uh, yeah. with the people who, who, lent him, uh, who lent him their votes, don't I agree. you? I agree, absolutely. There needs to be a Brexit bonus for the North, for Scotland, for Wales. And, uh, and uh, uh, he'd be well advised, Boris Johnson, to get busy with that right now. Uh, or he's not going to hold on to these places. Uh, if there's money... 
and we know there is. If there's a printing press, and we certainly know there is that, the banks know there is that, let's get printing some money. Let's get distributing money uh, in the north, in Wales, in Scotland. Let's do that. I agree with you, Rich. That's absolutely brilliant, George. Can I just say that my young granddaughter, she's only 22, she's just written a screen stage play and radio play, which I'm hoping is going to get on very well, wow. called Let Leonard, be near, near and dear to your heart. It's absolutely fantastic. Send it to me, Richard. Send it to me. Uh, where do I send it, George? Uh, if you uh, do, you follow me on Twitter. Uh, no, I don't. I'm sorry. I'm uh, not up to that. I'll tell you I'm what. Then own... we'll keep your uh, number, and I'll text you my email uh, after the show. Okay. All right, you'll, you'll enjoy the first part of it, George. I'll send it down to you with, with, with delight. I'd love to, and give her my regards and my. Congratulations and best wishes. Uh, clear the decks. There's a legend on the line. It's Norma in Bristol. Go ahead, Norma. Last call. Yeah, I know, George. I, I really got um, quite a lot to say, but I haven't got time. Thought, no, you do. You've got four minutes. Oh, good. First of all, Paul Robson. I wasn't going to speak about him. I was going to speak about, and I will, about the Jamaican deportations. But Paul Robson, my 100% hero... I think you were fantastic, George. Um, you made me shiver, and every time I hear, hear him sing, I shiver. I mean, I could I could tell you more about some personal things, but I haven't got time. But great, very good, great. He he was uh, a giant of a man in every respect. Yeah. His courage, his dignity, his mm. beauty, his mm. uh, cultural level, his Othello. His work, his Shakespearean acting, his film acting, uh, in showboat, his old man oh, river. Know. I mean, this is a man with a list of achievements and accomplishments that would put, you know, Hollywood and Broadway today to shame. And he did all that while being witch hunted, Norma. Oh, he died when he was quite depressed, actually. Yeah. Anyway, I, did, I got to talk to you about Abu. Yeah. Because. He was on about these Jamaican deportations. Yeah, I don't know enough and, about it. Well, I do. I'm just... Well, I don't know a lot, but I'm very upset about it because these people have done their time in prison. They've lived here all their lives. Um, if they were sent back, and they probably will be deported, they'd know nobody in Jamaica. They'd leave their wives, their children. And it's not right, George. Our government think it is the right thing to do. What do you think? Well, there can't be enough uh, Jamaicans in the country for me. Uh, there can't be enough uh, Afro-Caribbean people for me. Uh, they have added so much uh, to our national life. Where would we be without them? Uh, where would our football teams be? Where would our national football team be in England? Where would uh, our uh, television and screen and theatre be? Where would our music uh, scene B, I totally love uh, the Afro-Caribbean community here in uh, Britain, and I know them, and I'm close to them uh, very well indeed. But there is an issue, and I don't know enough about it. If people are here and they're not citizens and they're committing crimes... No, uh, then, they've done their time. They've well, done yeah, their you time. say done their time, but uh, there, is, uh, there is an issue. I don't know these people or their crimes, but there are some criminals... I don't want to have here if I don't have to have them here. Do you follow me? But then if they've been in prison in Britain, they've done their time, they've lived here all their life, they are, well, they've got families, wives, children, 
this, when they go back, if they went back to Jamaica, they'd know nobody. And to me, they're just the same as anybody else who's lived here and gone to prison and come out and probably been fine. Well, they're not, of course, not legally, because they're not citizens. Yeah, but that was a bit of a mess, wasn't I'm it? Not, I'm, I'm, yeah, that's a, that, if it's a Windrush issue, yeah, yeah you're right. Yeah. And we've also now discovered, uh, or others have now discovered, I knew it when I opposed it in Parliament at the time, that you can actually have your citizenship taken away from you uh, on the fiat of the government, uh, which is uh, an argument for another time. I'm glad... Norma, you cast some light on that subject. I really should have known more about it than I did. My only excuse is I've been away and travelling uh, over the last week when this story uh, arrived. 1917, 37% of you think that should be the Oscar winner. Parasite, just 15%. Joker, 48%. So a relatively close-run thing, just like the Irish election. Uh, may turn out to be close-run thing, but uh, I'm celebrating tonight. It's like uh, St. Patrick's Day for me. I lit a candle just the other day, and thanks God, Sinn Féin won the election. Bye for now.